Here's a few words with Gord Roche of Southwest Fire Academy. Do you want to tell me about what's coming up with SFA and touch on the loss of your friend and former student as well? First off, thoughts and prayers go out to Nicholas Cheeseman, his family, friends, and St. Thomas Fire Department for their loss. Nick was a graduate of Southwest Fire Academy, that very first boot camp that we did back in 2016, and then took a bunch of other courses through his journey to get hired with us. So just a terrible loss and just want to make sure that we extend our condolences to his family, friends, and the St. Thomas Fire Department. Absolutely. Okay, so what else is coming up with SFA? So the big one, we've announced in October a trench rescue technician course with Mike Tazarski's coming up and his crew is going to be working in conjunction with AJ Stone and Southwest Fire Academy to run a trench rescue technician course at the campus. So that's going to be pretty exciting. So get on our website, have a look at the dates and register for that. You won't find better. No, we talk about bringing in the legends into Southwest Fire Academy as far as instructors. That's that's one of them. Yeah, Mike is pushing so, boundaries and rewriting textbooks. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so we're stoked to have him coming up to share his knowledge and experience with everybody. Getting back into rolling out our boot camps and, and rolling out with the boot camp process. We've had a couple of weeks off over the summer to get some maintenance done and equipment done. And one of our very exciting things that I'm very proud of is our instructor playground that the guys are building out back at the campus have a little bit of a propane fire component to it, vent enter search, forcible entry, ventilation, all kinds of things are going to be in that just going to enhance the sets and reps with our with our students. So we're super stoked to get that up and running. And as always, pre-service fire, we're open enrollment, open registration. So get in now because the boot camps for this year, if they're not filled up, we're already starting to book into early 2023. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 49. I'm Scott Hewlett. Now, if some one man in a tribe, more sagacious than the others, invented a new snare or weapon or other means of attack or defense, the plainest self-interest, without the assistance of much reasoning power, would prompt the other members to imitate him, and all would thus profit. Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man, 1871, page 155. Manifested from our innate desire to survive and procreate, the ability of the human species to communicate, imitate, and cooperate has been the key to our evolutionary success. We will never know exactly when we started to communicate, best guess is placing it between 50,000 and 2 million years ago, but it is incredible to witness and consider how far we have come. Now, it could be argued that despite us having more ways and opportunities to communicate, than at any point in our history, that our effective use of it is declining. But regardless of the mediums and how the misuse and abuse of the message has and continues to impact us for the worse, we continue to be faced with the choice to learn to be better at it so we can all be better for it. The why is our guiding light. When we find ourselves bogged down in the weeds or lost in the trees, recentering ourselves on our mutual meaning and purpose keeps us calibrated and orientated. 
How and what we communicate and imitate and our choice to cooperate depends on it. It's easy to claim that firefighters aren't great communicators, and there are plenty of human missteps in our firehouses and on our fire scenes that we could point to to prove it. But it's actually the farthest thing from the truth. You can't look at the breadth of what is available to all of us now to be better people and better firefighters and still hold that belief. We may not be perfect at it, but no one ever has been. And we are continuing to learn to support each other as we seek to grow and improve for us and for the mission. My guest this episode and I have communicated a lot about communication and how it relates to our personal and professional work. It was great to finally sit down and record it so we could share it with all of you through this medium. It's my distinct pleasure to bring you Dave Vanderberg. Okay, so let's just start off easy like we always do. And you tell me about where you were born and raised and a little bit about your upbringing and your family dynamic and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I was born and raised in Toronto, kind of in the southeast end in the beaches area. Dad's a bit of a brainiac professor <laughs> and mom was a stay-at-home mom. You've had my cousin on here before. Yeah. For all those of you guys who want to listen to episode with Chris Vanderberg, but he grew up, I guess, about two streets away from me. And so that was like a second home. We used to hang out a ton when we were kids. And You were down near the beach in the bike path. Yeah, so it was like a great place to to grow up, full access to the outdoors and having the lake there and the bike path. And yeah, so I kind of grew up like we always used to, my mom used to take me out cycling and stuff like that. We used to get on our bikes and make day trips and all that kind of good stuff. And you've always talked about the freedom that you guys were allowed to have and how crazy it seems now. I guess it doesn't seem crazy to you, but anyone listening thinks about their kids doing this, it does sound a bit crazy. We went to a French school growing up and this French school is downtown Toronto. So when we were younger, I think my sister, I'm trying to remember how old she would have been, like maybe six or seven years old. And then Chris was a year younger. And then it was Paul and then Paul was my other cousin. And then it was me. And we used to get on the streetcar in the morning and go to school together. So my sister was the one in charge being like seven. (laughs) And we used to get off at Sherburne. We went to Gabriel de which was like, anyway, just Sherburne and Dundas there. So we'd walk through Moss Park. Well, Moss Park back in the day, like Sherburne and Queen, if anyone knows, like Moss Park was a little sketchy. There's a men's shelter right there. And I remember very specifically like walking around like the homeless people sleeping in the park and like needles and all this kind of stuff just being around. We didn't think anything of it. You were just, that was how we got to school. And now there's parents that are getting the police called on them because their kids are down at the end of the block at the park playing and they're nine. Right. The helicopter parenting kind of idea, right? Where it's like the two extremes. And there's no part of me that ever felt like my parents were negligent in any way whatsoever. It was just the way we were raised. And it was the same thing for sports for me. Like when I grew up, I was like, hey, I want to play hockey. They're like, okay, figure it out. You do it. You get yourself there. And again, it's not, I think some people might take that as like, oh, my parents didn't care. Like they weren't good parents. They weren't attentive, which is totally not true. It's just, I think growing up in Holland, because they both grew up in Holland. That just wasn't a thing in in their family. So they just didn't, it, it wasn't something they grew up with. It was more of an immigrant mentality of like, hey, you want to go play hockey? You go do it yourself. So I used to get my, get up, get myself up at whatever, four or five in the morning and get my hockey bag and walk down to the end of the street, grab this Queen Streetcar, the 501 Streetcar. <laughs> and I used to just go whatever rink, kind of find my way to whatever rink we need to go to kind of In thing. the winter. Oh yeah, whatever. Yeah, this was like, didn't matter what sport it was. This was the same for across the board. And it's funny, some of the parents of the other kids, they start to find out, they were like, how'd you get here? <laughs> like, what do you mean? How? Like, I just took the TTC. They're like, you took the TTC. 
they were just like, what is going on here? So a few of the parents, I think, took pity on me and started picking me up from like subway stations. So I would like, you know, take the subway to like Young and Egg or something like that. And then one of my buddies would like swing by and I would throw my stuff in the back of the minivan and we'd go off to whatever rank. But the positive side of that is that it taught me a tremendous amount of independence. Yeah. And like when I travel... I travel extensively and it's always been something I've never shied away from. There have been a lot of trips where I just get on a plane and I know a country I'm going to, but I have no idea where I'm staying that night. I'm reading the travel book as I'm flying, kind of going like, oh, I should probably develop some kind of a plan here. (laughs) (laughs) But in some ways, it's the best way to travel. Get off a plane and you kind of, you figure it out. And that's, you meet a lot of people that way too, right? So, I mean, that's always been something that's very big for me is people. And I think when you kind of create that, opening sometimes where you don't have a plan. It's just, it allows you then to be even more so interact with people and just kind of say, hey, like, where did you stay last night? Yeah. And speaking of people, you grew up in a very multicultural city and you were exposed to a lot of different ethnicities and your parents were very open and thoughtful and compassionate, empathetic and seeing people as equals. And so that impacted you as well. Yeah, for sure. Like we grew up, I guess what would be termed little India, which was, so initially we were kind of like that Coxwell, Gerard until I was about seven years old. Yeah. So like, I remember again, getting off the TTC or whatever after school and like walking through and like the smells and the sounds, different language and like the cooking and all that kind of stuff. And, and my dad being a prof, like he had a lot of graduate students that were of different cultures as well. And we'd have them over for dinner or we'd go to their house for dinner sometimes and just trying different foods. And yeah, I think Toronto also just naturally has a lot of different cultures and different experiences that way. And yeah, you just grow up where it's the norm. This is how it is. Like we just, yeah, you grow up in these neighborhoods and you talk to different people and people have accents and. And much easier to, to hold on to that truth. It's instilled when you're young, as opposed to having to change a fixed mindset. Yeah. Because I don't think you have to even hold on to something. It's just like, it's just there. It's almost weird when it's not. It's weird. You find yourselves in these parts of Canada where, oh my goodness, there's no, there's no diversity here. That was the abnormal. And it stands out to you when you hear and see things to the counter. Yeah. And I think that part of that kind of understanding of people as well, like from that early age, like you brought up, like my parents were always very much involved in volunteering. So that was another thing. Like it's not just the cultural class, but also socioeconomic classes as well, where like my mom, she was a teacher and then she quit teaching when she, it's a long story. My dad went to kind of get a second PhD in France. So she quit teaching when he went to do that. And then when she came back, they had my sister. So she was born in France. So at that point, then they made the decision that my mom would stay at home. But when we got old enough to kind of do our own thing after school, when we were like five, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, when we were, my sister was a bit older. I think she was like 12 or 13. My mom was like, well, I don't have enough stuff at home here to kind of, there's other passions I have. So I think that one of the passions she had was teaching and that was kind of not, it was the decision they made, but she would have liked to continue that in some regard, I'm sure. So she started teaching inmates how to read and write at the Don Jail, right? So my mom would kind of head over there. I think it was, it was pretty often. I want to say like four or five days a week she wow. would go over there. Yeah. And it'd be for a few hours, like some day or whatever. But yeah, so she would go teach a lot of these inmates how to read and write. So again, I think my parents also exposing themselves to a lot of these different kind of groups. Like my parents always volunteered a lot, like homeless shelters and food banks and all that kind of stuff. So I think it really opened my eyes to how many different types of lifestyles there were, like culturally and economically. And it just like our city is just this, this vast kind of like pulsating massive differences in people. And that's kind of what brings a vibrancy to it. But yeah. And even going to the Don Jail to do that kind of work. I mean, that obviously you may not have known it immediately, but I'm sure you reflected on it as you got older about 
that idea of rehabilitation and giving back and yeah. second chances and what jail is all about. And you must have had questions along the way. And that leads into me asking about, you guys had great conversations in the house around the kitchen table all the time, not just your standard, what did you do at school today? Yeah, the rehabilitation is an interesting point. I mean, I'll date myself here, but I'm old enough where when I went to high school, we did an OAC year. So I took law and I can't remember if it was grade 12 or OAC, but anyway, it doesn't matter. But we had to write that final paper. And I, I wrote mine on rehabilitation within the, the correction system. I remember even then, kind of like it's a high school paper, you're scratching the surface at like something that would be... Uh, a thesis. Yeah, exactly. Considered yeah. like a real academic paper. But there are a lot of times where second chances and and it's it's also kind of like learning from a young age that nothing's kind of black or white in a lot of these situations, right? It's like, okay, well, there's this man or woman or whatever, this person who's potentially even... And again, I'm not saying anyone in jail's guilty. <laughs> we all know how many times that's not true, but... Assuming even if they did it, it's, well, how do we judge this person then? Because what circumstances do they grow up in? What are the conditions surrounding this? Like, you know, that idea of like, if someone steals a loaf of bread to feed their family, like, are they a thief? Right. It's like, well, technically by the law, yes. But is there not compassion in kind of society then to say, well, geez, they're just trying to feed their family? Or, or now you whatnot. can buy, you can go to any store and buy weed, but if you got caught with a couple grams... 15 years ago, you're in jail for a decade or more. This will be a really long podcast if you want to start getting into white, white collar crime and yeah. uh, the differences. But uh, yeah, but then this was your parent, when I'm driving out of here, mm-hmm. your parents were putting into action what they were saying in words to you. It wasn't just, this is the way the world should work or this is what we think. Like your parents were going out and doing it. They're yeah. modeling behavior. They definitely exposed me to a lot of stuff that I think has a tremendous amount of value in a lot of aspects of my life nowadays that I, I don't think I appreciate until I got older. And as you said, reflected on them. These things carried over long time from when my grandparents, even there were lessons that I believe were just brought down to my parents as well, where, and I, I hate to use this word, but I don't know how else to describe it, but I always describe my parents as, as socialists. And I don't mean for everyone who's listening to this, I don't mean like we're not getting into like Marxist socialism, right. you know, I mean- Postmodern theory. Exactly. And, yeah. I mean, we're talking at the very fundamental level of people need to look out for each other. It's like almost like a small town mentality where yes. no one gets left behind. We should all care for each other. Everyone should get a few meals a day and that just kind of be the way things are. And my grandparents really, I think, set the bar pretty high for that in terms of what their expectations were when they raised my parents. So my dad was born near the end of the war in Holland in 44. And at that time, my grandparents were hiding a Jewish nurse in their house. And again, when you think of the consequences of those actions back in the day, I mean, that's the ultimate, to me, it's almost like one of the ultimate kind of acts or behaviors you can take on that shows your altruism. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Your care and compassion for humanity. That act would be extremely altruistic in terms of... You could die. Well, yeah, you'd be on the next train to one of the death camps if they caught you hiding someone, right? So obviously the Holocaust is a horrible thing. And a lot of other people went to those camps that weren't just Jewish, right? It was, if you had different sexual orientation or any of these other things, there was a lot of prejudice and a lot of, obviously a lot of these like kind of extremely kind of horrific actions that took place. But my grandparents trying to go against that grain and hiding this Jewish woman, you think my grandmother was pregnant with my dad they had been found out. And it's funny, my grandparents, they lived, they were married for whatever, 70 years. They lived both almost a hundred. And there was only a few nights they ever spent apart in their entire life. And one of those nights was in Holland when my grandmother was pregnant with my dad. And they were trying to also feed this Jewish woman and they didn't have enough 
rations through the, the wartime rations. So my grandfather had this deal with this local farmer. I can't remember what he would do. He'd go over there and maybe help him out. And then the farmer would give him a few extra eggs and some food. So he was coming home from this farm one evening and then he came across a German patrol. So he just ducked under one of these road culverts at the last second. He hid in there because I guess the, he felt like they were kind of in the area and just didn't want to get caught. Well, my grandmother, of course, just a little bit before cell phones, so he couldn't text her and say, hey, I'm in this culvert or whatever. So I'm finna be hid in this culvert. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So anyway, so he spent the entire night in this like culvert or whatever and like went back home the next morning. Well, she was like, she had thought that he had been caught. And potentially never see him again or whatever, right? So, I mean, when you think, and again, I'm not trying to put my grandparents in this pedestal or whatever, but, and a lot of these stories, it's funny, like, I didn't even know a lot of these stories growing up because it just, this wasn't something that we sat around the table and patted my grandparents on the back for. This was just, this was considered what you would do. So it wasn't abnormal. I don't want anyone taking offense if they grew up in Holland or any of those areas and their family didn't hide someone. I don't mean to, everyone's trying to survive at that point. Don't get me wrong. Well, Jordan Peterson speaks a lot about the odds that you would have been a guard in that war or on the Nazi side was way higher than if you were on the side of the good. There's so many interesting papers that have been written on this. And there's a really interesting one that Primo Levi actually wrote about his experience. So he was a Jewish man that, forgive me if I'm, I think he was in Auschwitz, but again, forgive me if, if I'm getting the camp wrong. And he was always vilified by his community because he was given a role of cleanup kind of around the, like, I hate to even use, like talk about this stuff when I don't but around some of these, the these crematoriums and yeah. stuff like that. And he would kind of clean up and obviously we all know what that means. Yes. And he was always vilified as kind of this, and it was something he always struggled with. And whether you want to place yourself in his position, you go, how could you ever do that? How could you ever help the Nazis? And it's like, well, what were his choices, right? I mean, at that point, I think everyone's trying to survive. And then on the flip side too, it's like, we can sit here and judge these guards well, are we really going to think that Germany was full of psychopaths at that this point? That enjoyed all of this. Right. Yeah. Like it's, I, again, there's a reason why there was such abundant drug use by the Nazis back in the day. I think a lot of these guys to do what they were doing had to be stoned out of their minds. Yeah, there's a lot of... So, I mean, all I'm saying is like, it just, in everything in life, it was just another demonstration of, of how, and I think the Primo Levi talks about these gray zones and life is just these gray zones. And that's something I've really noticed as I get older is like, you really... Life is an onion. There's so many layers to it. And it's so hard to pick these layers apart and really judge someone until you've walked a day in their shoes. And even then, like, so you walk, you experience something someone else has experienced. Well, like, do you really understand the way they experience it? Because their upbringing, their, they might have such different lenses that they're looking at the world through that you're not. And therefore you could experience the exact same thing and have completely different results. But with my grandparents, like it wasn't something we even really knew that they did. And it's as I got older, I kind of learned these stories and I was thinking like, man, but I, I was always told my grandparents didn't like talking about these things. When my grandparents passed away, I really had some guilt around this idea of like not having these conversations when they were alive. Don't bring it up. Right. right. Again, they had so many kind of horrific experiences of friends they knew that got sent away and all this kind of stuff that it was hard for them to speak about. But I do believe that I wish I had probed it a bit, but one of my aunts, she kind of knew a lot of these stories quite well. So I would ask her a lot of questions. And then it's really funny how life works out where uh, years ago I was dating this girl who had a couple of roommates. She had gone back to school anyway. So one of her roommates was a young Jewish woman 
and it was around Christmas time. And so that she had the menorah, the candle, yeah. you're right. So I was asking her some questions about that just because again, like I just don't have much experience with it. So I was just trying to educate myself basically a little bit. Anyway, this conversation we had led to one another and I kind of gave her a little, I don't like telling people a lot of time, but I gave her a little bit of a Coles notes about this story about my grandparents. And she asked me, and again, forgive me if I'm getting some of these names wrong, but she's like, are they on Yad Vashem? And I was like, I don't, sorry, I don't know what that is. She's like, well, it's a website that they've created, a Jewish organization or whatever has created this, this database, database, exactly for this memory of kind of, of trying to keep some of these memories alive. It is phenomenal. I had no idea that existed. No idea. Yeah. So she's like, what's their name? So I, I told her. So she finds them on this Come website. On. And part of what they were recognized with is that in Israel, there's a Boulevard of the Righteous. And it's Oscar Schindler has like a tree planted there. So all these people that help these Jewish families during the war that have these trees and have a plaque that kind of describes them. Well, it turns out my grandparents have a tree planted wow. there. And they had these pictures of my grandparents like digging the hole in Israel, (laughs) planting this tree. And I'm like, when did they go to Israel? I didn't even know they went. And my grandfather, every day I ever saw him, like my grandfather, every single day, he had a button up shirt with a tie on. Didn't matter if he was sitting at home watching the news or reading the newspaper every single day. And he's digging this hole in his shirt and tie. And I'm like, oh my God, this is... Yeah, they had a few family pictures too, which I guess they took of my family before they went to Israel. It's kind of like a, maybe they had the picture on the plaque or something. I don't know. But I'm like, there's my dad, my uncle, my aunt when they were children. And there's these pictures that no one in my family has ever seen. And it's on this website. And it was just just chance conversation having with this girl I was dating at the time. What a her, one of her roommates. Have you been? Have you been to the tree? Do you plan no, on going? No, it's, it's always been on my... Yeah, it's always been on my radar. Like, yeah. so in my travels, I haven't gone to Israel yet, but I would definitely, yeah, I would, I would love to go there and try to find and get it. your picture by them. I mean, how amazing would uh, that be? Yeah, even it gives just, me goosebumps thinking about it. Well, that's exactly it. Just to sit there and I think, like, even take a moment and of reflect memory of, like, and again, of like thinking really of what it meant of what they did. It's just such a powerful thing. And I, I don't, not everyone can, who doesn't know me listening to this would see me, but I, I have quite a few tattoos. One of my sleeves, one of the symbols on my arm is like a socialist symbol. I was always kind of wary because I was thinking like, you know, I don't want people thinking this is some kind to of misunderstand. Like, exactly. A right. misunderstanding of, of the Which term. there's a lot of these days. There is, but I was like, you know what, this is my, so this, this sleeve is about my family. And I'm like, this is, this is my family. Like if anyone wants to judge me on that, this is where, again, I think maturity and age, you just get at a point where you're like, ask. I don't, and if someone judges me on it, guess what? I don't care. Right. <laughs> Yeah, because you know who you are and why you did it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, like to your question, which was probably 10 minutes ago to this long-winded answer, but there has been a lot of these lessons that I think we've learned over the years of compassion for others and, and helping out and really making service as part of, it's just always been a part of my life. So I remember one of the things we had talked about at once, you had asked me, like, what brought you to the fire department? And there's no real experience. Like, I don't have some great story. I was not one of those kids who grew up wanting to be a firefighter. I was in university writing a paper. I have a couple degrees in random engineering and urban planning. And I remember writing this paper going like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Like sit at a desk, fight bureaucratic red tape. I've been doing a co-op at the time and it was like just beating your head against a wall trying to deal with some of the stuff. I mean, that was 20 years ago with some of these, if anyone's familiar with the ideas of new urbanism. and So mentally, I think you found it probably challenging enough to keep your interest and maybe your your morals and your values and ethics if you were able to do the things you, you felt needed to be done. But because of the bureaucratic red tape, it sort of steered you away from it. Yeah, and it just wasn't my style. I mean, I had a few friends who had jobs in government at the time, just like friends I had who graduated a couple of years before me. And they were saying how much 
of the year they would work on a project and that project would get pulled because their manager would change or because someone else would get elected or there's all these different circumstances where people would work for months or years on these projects and then something would change and it would just get pulled and you start from scratch on something again. And That's like, got to be like political party campaigns and they're working for the term and the term ends and the party changes and it gets scrapped. Where's the I did the work, I see the result? And that's where it becomes tremendously hard when you think about like if you're really going to make a change in terms of how a city is designed. I mean, this isn't going to be a four-year thing. I mean, we're talking about decades. So and that's part of the problem of getting some of these things worked through is that it just there's just not enough time. And then as soon as something changes, then everything's got scrapped. It's like, well, we're just sitting here spinning our wheels. And even if it made sense, the next party might be like, well, they came up with that idea, so we're right. going to scrap it. hundred <laughs> percent. Exactly. And that's unfortunate to our system right now. I think right. like it's one of these, like people get indoctrinated to a certain affiliation and then anything else that's said with outside of that affiliation is stupid. Well, it's like, why can't we all just have good ideas? Right. Like I like bike lanes, but I don't like your bike lanes. Right. Right. <laughs> And then I'll call them, yeah, and I'll be like, I'll call them something else so that I can take credit for it, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, we see that all the time. We see it in in our industry too, right? So that education, that experience, and again, the conversations that we have and how they tie into when we're driving around and when we're talking about driving the truck, right? We're talking to new rookies or people that are going to be starting driving. We're talking about, we're inundating with all the information. Right. But you are the one that brought it to my mind because I really haven't had another experience about how corners on intersections are shaped matter. If you make them sharp corners, people have to really slow down and make a turn. But we have all these sweeping on-ramps at intersections or rounded corners. You can hold your speed. So there's a lot more pedestrian struck and the injuries are worse. And I was like, oh, I just really like opened my mind about how design in the city matters, even in the case of us, right? Oh, absolutely. From the calls we respond to, to how we witness drivers driving. A lot of these ideas of these medians and the reasons why they're put in the first place and what the actual real world changes quite a bit. And you're right, a lot of these corners, then it's also like when you look at an intersection, it's not just how the corner is, the corner sweeping, but it's like, where do people cross in that corner? Right. Right. Like how are the lights timed? It's this idea that if we keep kind of traffic flowing, it'll be safer. Studies have shown over and over again, it's, it's almost the opposite. The more confusing an intersection is, the less accidents there are. Because people don't know what they're doing, so they actually slow down, they have a look around, and it's not just that. But I mean, who knows too, like how much of that, we talk about these things, but it's like sometimes the cities are planned and it's before smartphones. Right. So a lot of these corners are planned. And then now it's like the problem we're having is people are able to keep up their speed. Well, that's a problem, but they're also on their cell phone. Yeah. And so is a pedestrian. Or And people are overworked. They're over fatigued. It's not well lit. It's, I mean, it's a million things. Right. So, I mean, the kind of the engineering that I took, which also kind of lends into kind of a bit of my dad's kind of academic background and stuff too. But it's like this, again, we talk about these onions, these gray areas where it's not just one thing. There's so many layers to what makes these things potentially unsafe or what makes cities potentially inefficient or, I mean, it's a tremendously interesting topic. I just wasn't prepared to beat my head against the wall <laughs> and fight this bureaucratic, which I sometimes almost have guilt with. I do feel I'm like, would my purpose have been greater? Could I have done more good in the world if I had pursued that? And I, don't get me wrong, there's not a second that goes by that I'm not super grateful that I stumbled into this career. Because the reality is like, I was writing this paper in third year university <laughs> And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I start to write a list of things that I wanted to do. And that actually pointed me towards policing. And again, I'm not going to sit here and bash. It's not about, I'm glad I didn't get into policing. Either you align with it or you don't. Right. Like, and it's I not, couldn't be a police officer. It's a really hard job. Oh. And I have all the respect in the world for cop. We work with, and just like everyone else, there's good ones and bad ones. I mean, it's life. There's good and bad everything. But I just think policing is a really hard job. I think harder in some, for my personality, it's a harder job 
than firefighting. And my family all basically said, they were like, you're not a cop. Like they just laughed at me almost like not in a malicious way, but kind of a way my family would do. They're like, I don't know, Dave, like we don't necessarily see you being a cop. (laughs) To this day, I actually can't remember who it was, but someone suggested firefighting. And I was like, oh, that kind of seems interesting. So I had vowed that I would never do another more schooling or another exam after I graduated from university. But at that point, when I was in university, I started taking courses on the side, try to again, boost my resume. And at the time, pre-service, this was at the cusp of pre-service. And so some departments still, you didn't need it. So I was kind of like, well, I have a degree. I've done enough schooling. And not to say a degree would mean anything in terms of a fire application. I just, for me, it was formal learning. I was not a huge fan. I took a bunch of these classes and then found out, I applied to, I think it was Markham. They were like, no one recognizes these courses. So I was taking at this place called the Fire Academy. And I, I feel comfortable saying their name because sure. they're defunct now. Right, okay. But they went out of business not that long after because I did research to find out if they're an accredited teaching facility. They were, but they weren't accredited through any kind of fire. So they were accredited to teach and that's how they got it. It was like this weird wording that they kind of skirted. You can teach so, basket weaving or firefighting. Well, it's, I mean, how many of these do we see these, these little, in these subdivisions sometimes are these plazas. Yes. Where you have these plazas where you have these like little... It's like, learn how to be a cop or it's like, learn massage, learn whatever. And it's like, well, and some of them could be great. I'm not, but it, it's, you just don't know. Right. So I think anyway, I didn't obviously do enough research <laughs> and did a bunch of those courses and then uh, found out all those were bogus. So then I ended up actually calling the guy who was running Seneca at the time is, I believe his name is Stu Evans. And I called him up and I was just kind of like, look, I want to be a firefighter. This is kind of the route I want to take. And he's like, tell me a bit about yourself. And he's like, okay, come in September. I'll save you a spot. That September, I ended up enrolling at Seneca and spent 10, 12 months, whatever. I can't remember. I don't think it was quite 12 months, maybe 11 months, but took out my pre-service and then was one of the lucky ones to get hired pretty quickly. And in my program, actually, it was Mandy Gould and Christian Gorgon. So we, yeah, from the little Seneca group. There's a couple others that have been hired since with Brampton as well. But yeah, so there's a few of us that got hired on there. But I got lucky. It was pretty quick. And it was really interesting too, like during college that there was a few guys that were like, Hey, once I get this pre-service, I'll get a job. And I remember thinking on day one during our, whatever it was the introduction to kind of the, the program, they were like, look around the room. It was something like, I can't remember what percentage yeah, or... percentage they said, we'll never get jobs. And it was like the average male in their twenties, which I late twenties, I was at the time, it took seven to 10 years to get a job. And I remember being like, that is not in the cards for me. Like I don't want, and nothing against people who get hired at 35. It's just Maybe from a practical standpoint, I was thinking, okay, I want to get a 30-year career and I want to get a full pension. I just, so I want to get hired quickly. So during pre-service, a lot of the guys would be partying on weekends. It's like, well, I was out doing every single course I could do. It was high angle courses, to water rescue, to whatever I could do. And then it was also like trying to find out, well, it's like, what's the minimum? Well, I don't want to do just the minimum. So it was like, you had to have basic first aid and CPR. So then I did a full EMR course, a 40-hour. Then I did the 80-hour course. And then, and then I became an instructor. Right. It was like, how do I kind of keep pushing these boundaries to make myself, I want them to pick up my resume and then remember it being different from the next one. So that was always my strategy kind of going in. So like just kind of like rolled in from kind of going to university to going to fire college and kind of rolling it in. Didn't you do something fire prevention wise when you're TAing? You mentioned that too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was a TA in university and I remember after the lecture, you kind of went to these, these classes and then with the TA, you'd go through like coming assignments, you go through questions they had. So like, anyway, whatever, one of these kind of after courses kind of things, I remember leaving there and seeing this, this van drive by that said like U of T fire prevention. Anyway, sorry, I went to U of T and it drove by or whatever. And I I remember thinking like fire prevention, like why would they, I always just assumed it was part of what Toronto fire would do. Right. 
I found out where they were. It was like fairly close to where I was. So I just kind of like walked over. I just went and talked to the guy, I guess, who was like the head of the fire prevention, whatever. And I was like, look, I, I want to be a firefighter. Do you mind if I just shadow one of your guys once a week? I don't want to get paid. I don't want to cause anyone's problems. Like I, I just, I would love to just learn a bit more about this and just broaden my horizons here. They were amazing guys there. And yeah, they let me kind of shadow this one guy in particular. It was a really nice guy. So I shadowed him for, oh, it was a few months. And then it's funny, it actually ended up turning into a job offer because they were having these problems with their parking garages where I don't know if this is a typical problem or if it was just whoever installed these, but they were a lot of their dry systems were rotting out. So I guess there was some moisture trapped in there and then the pipes were rusting on the inside. So what they were noticing is that when they're in these pressures, like some of these pipes were bursting because there just wasn't enough metal. And they were like, well, how do we, if you know how big the St. George campus is, yeah, you are talking about, again, I'm guessing here, but it'd be like millions of kilometers of pipe. They're like, how do we, and I was like, well, why don't you guys figure out we have the engineering, the magnet section of like the UFT engineering, just like down the road here. Like I walk by it coming here and I, obviously I don't know whatever string of engineering, these guys study these magnets, whatever. I like, obviously it's not called magnet engineering. (laughs) um, Anyway, so that just goes to show like my, this is why I got out of academia. They make fridge magnets. You can tell like, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I was like, why don't you go talk to those guys and then find out like what kind of magnet sticks to like whatever thickness of metal you guys need. And then if there's not that thickness of metal, the magnet will fall off. And they were like, what? What? <laughs> so it blew their, yeah. So it kind of blew their, and they were like, that's. Brilliant. Yeah. They were like, what, you know, that's, so I actually got offered a job on the, like not on the spot, but Do it you was. you want to run this place? Yeah. <laughs> well, essentially that's what it was. So there was two guys. So there was a guy who was retiring, who was what they called the chief. And there was kind of like a deputy and there was, I think like eight or 10 prevention officers. And so the, the guy in charge was retiring. The guy, the deputy was taking over his spot and they offered me like the, whatever it was like the, I I hate to call it the deputy, because it's like, we all know in terms of the rank and structure in a fire department, it's not, but yeah. So they offered me the second in position kind of job, whatever. And I mean, the starting salary was six figures. I was in my twenties and it was like, you know, had some perks. Like if your kid went to U of T, they'd get to go for free. So my dad being a prof, which was interesting, he was a prof at U of T as well. But so I, I got what they called an academic association scholarship or something like that. And it was because he was a prof, I got half off my tuition, but I could carry that to any university in Ontario. But if you were an employee of U of T, then your kids could go to U of T for free. So yeah, there was some perks there, and I, but the reality is, I mean, as flattered as I was, it just, it, it also wasn't firefighting. At this point, I'd really set my mind on that. And I was like, much as I'm flattered, it was, it's kind of interesting how I'd love to say I learned a lot about fire prevention. <laughs> I'm sure in some ways I like, did open my eyes to a lot of stuff, but yeah, it led to some opportunities, but this was a career that I was interested in because it wasn't just like, I never liked formal learning. I love learning. I just don't like formal learning. And I was lucky enough to just do well in school with, let's just call it slightly less work than I should have probably done. (laughs) Yeah. I I kind of feel in some ways like education for me was almost like learning how to not cheat the system, but it's like how to work around kind of anyway. That's interesting. You mentioned that about the little bit less effort than you needed to, because they were concerned in school at some point that you had a learning disability, but you were actually then tested as gifted. We were just talking on the drive over here about people misunderstanding things and giving misdiagnoses or whatever and how it affects people's lives. And that's a pretty strong one. Yeah. I've had two big ones in my life, I guess. Yeah. That was the first one, which I look back on. I just laugh now, but so I guess what they found out was that I think it was in grade two and I just wasn't picking up on things like other kids. 
and I was distracted a lot. You I were think solving I, engineering problems in your head. Yeah, definitely <laughs> wasn't doing that. <laughs> I think I was distracting a lot of kids around me. I was always a very social kid. Like I always just loved talking to people and playing with my buddies. And I remember I was held back at recess. I mean, I probably yeah, got held back at recess more than I was allowed to go to recess. So they got me tested because they thought I was a little simple, not the sharpest tool in the shed there. But the interesting thing that came of that is they found out that I actually had a real hard time hearing. I guess I was born with like small canals in my ears. So like the, the fluid wouldn't drain away. So I ended up having to get these tubes. And once I got tubes, well, it was like everything kind of opened up and it was like, oh, I can actually hear stuff and I can hear the teacher yelling at me. <laughs> so it kind of put me more in line, but it's funny. So yeah, when they had me tested, so I remember they, there was some, and again, like I can't remember the details, but this was part of the French school board, but they had some lady come in. I was doing this like test and she would do it with the child. I'm assuming she would do it with, or maybe just because the age I was at. But so she was doing this test with me. I guess I was doing an okay job at answering whatever questions she was asking. And then she stopped the test at a certain point. And I guess what I found out later was that she thought they gave me the wrong test. She was like, oh, I'm, I thought I was here testing this guy because he potentially was a little simple. Right. And she's like, he's doing so well on this. Like, well, mind you, I'm sure the test was easy. <laughs> she went to the office, I guess, asking then if, if I was given the right test and if she should be tested for the gifted class. So she ended up giving me that test kind of by accident, which I ended up passing. She was like, well, it can't be for this test. So it's gotta be for this test. So I ended up passing that test. <laughs> My parents chose not to put me in it, which I think is probably the right call. And again, trust me, I don't think I'm gifted either. It's just, I think it was the circumstance of everything that happened. But anyway, yeah, it's kind of a a weird kind of thing where, yeah, the diagnosis was just like a 180 of just like, actually, all I needed to do was hear the teacher. So, and that made me a little, a little better in school. Yeah. So tell me more about your dad and his academic background, a bit about his path and how his unique challenges and then how that affected you or impacted you growing up. Yeah. So I'll give a bit of a Coles notes here. I don't want to bore people here, but like when he was really young, he was always kind of showed a lot of promise in Holland for like, I guess there's these special... I don't really understand how it works, but there's these schools based on how you test in certain schools, you get put in other schools. So they he have ways testing. of recognizing kids at different levels and yeah, allowing he, them to be in situations to excel. Yeah. So he always excelled at academia. Like he was a very bright kid. On the flip side, he also had a vision problem, which I think it's interesting. In some ways, it probably limited his ability to play sports, which then made him gravitate towards, like my dad described a lot of his youth, like reading about cars. My dad loved cars. He always wanted to be a car designer and he would build a lot of things out of Meccano. I guess in some ways it would almost be quasi engineering kind of, he would problem solve a lot of things. And my grandfather was a pretty smart guy too. And like they would work on kind of things together and how to resolve these things. So I think my dad's academic path was in some ways, I don't want to say made easier, but was facilitated because he had a harder time seeing things. So like my dad has a genetic disease called RP. Chris's father also has this, which is retina pigmentosa, I believe it's called. And that's where you start to, your retina starts to detach from small points and these become little black spots and they grow and grow until it eventually takes up your entire field of vision. My dad described even as a kid having a hard time when he was in his early teens, like riding his bike, especially at night. So, you know, he buzzed a couple people and uh, they'd get mad at him thinking he was just being a punk kid, but he's like, I didn't see you there. Like I didn't realize kind of you're there. So like, I, I think in some ways that led to him kind of gravitating more towards kind of books and challenging his brain and all that kind of stuff. As his world closed in one way, yeah. he was looking for ways to open it up. Sure. And my grandparents, it was interesting how they raised them too, because they were not ones to, 
again, like you think what this was in the fifties, like back in the day, if you were blind, it was kind of like, okay, we'll find a chair for you to sit on and that'll be your job. And you're not, you're almost deemed as like, you weren't able to do a lot of jobs because you were blind. So my dad hid his blindness because he could still get around at that time. And he learned how to navigate my dad when he first went to school. So he was quite ahead when they emigrated to North America, he ended up skipping a bunch of grades because his math and everything was, was a little more advanced and stuff, but he went to engineering and ended up doing a co-op at the Bruce nuclear power plant was designing their boilers. And at that point, so being legally blind, he was hiding it from everyone and using like a slide ruler to do all of his calculations and stuff. From what I understand, I think they still use the boilers he designed there, I think. But uh, anyway, doesn't matter. It led to him kind of scratching the surface of the nuclear industry. And then he had this, he found out kind of how they were kind of getting rid of the the waste from these nuclear power plants. And they were putting it down these mine shafts. And my dad's like, you're like throwing these things into like groundwater. This is not a solution. He kind of got disenfranchised with that whole side of things. And... I guess, decided at that point that he figured engineering need to have a complete revamp of how people were taught because he's like, having got a PhD in engineering, he's like, no one even talked to me about this. Like the, the idea of like, like an environmental footprint or any kind of idea of like the effect you're having on the world around you was never considered, right? And so this was never considered on a lot of different factors from the environment to workers, to our cities, to our government to our education system. So there's all these, what he started to see is these shortfalls in our system. So that led him to go to France to study with this French sociologist who's ended up whatever being my godfather kind of thing. But so my dad went there, kind of got a PhD in sociology as well, and then came back here and then UFT offered him. And this is again, I think this was in the late sixties or somewhere around there. Apologize. It would have been like in the seventies, but they offered my dad this position where he could open his own center. It was called the Center for Technology and Social Development with the idea of being that you kind of open the engineering world to some of these kind of outside influences. And that's always kind of been his kind of forte. And that's a lot of his books are written on that kind of stuff. And then it really kind of opened my eyes because again, you talk about these layers of this onion in terms of like work. Well, what's the problem with work in terms of how we engineer things? It's like, well, if we don't have a human factor to a lot of what we do with engineering, we're really losing out. We're really doing a lot of harm to ourselves and our environment. And so these, these conversations we had really opened my eyes growing up to a lot of the, these, these issues. And, and more importantly, being a critical thinker. Right. Yeah. It really made me understand from a young age, like there are a lot of layers here and not one just affects the other. And, and it kind of formed, I guess, like initially like my academic pursuit as well. Like I wrote a few little papers too. And one of them I remember specifically was on this Volvo assembly plant. So at the time there were a lot of people would sit in assembly line, they would have one task and it led to a lot of like repetitive stress injuries, a lot of mental health issues, which is something that's dear and true to our hearts with peer support and all that. And again, like sick time would be high. People, they just weren't doing well in these environments. And so at this time, people finally start to like poke around and kind of say like, hey, like what's going on here? And then Volvo was one of the first manufacturers, I believe, that they had this assembly plant in Kallenberg. They had a team that would assemble the entire car. So the car would go along the assembly line, but that team would stay with the car. So like during this station, you might put on, you might put in the passenger seat. Well, at the next station, then you put on the passenger door, then you put on the passenger door mirror, and then you kind of become a little bit more of a jack of all trades. And they noticed that they actually saved a lot of money because their cars, people took pride in the car they built. So there was a lot less recalls. The people weren't calling in for sick as much. They noticed their, like their benefits didn't cost them as much because people just didn't need 
doctors to deal with repetitive strain injuries. And it was just, it really, like some of these things really opened up my mind to, it's like, oh man, there's different ways of looking at things that really kind of potentially, there's not just one way to skin a cat. The Volkswagen plant, uh, I've seen videos on that as well. It's extremely interesting. Obviously, I've been out of the game for so long now. I'm sure there's a lot of advancements that have been made for this. Because, I mean, it's not it's not something that's fairly new. There's a lot of advancements trying to save money. I mean, 3M, in, I believe it was in Germany, but it's funny, like through all this kind of stuff too, they had these, they were cleaning these microprocessors and they used to use this like really toxic kind of cleaner and stuff like that. And they were spending a lot of money and they'd have to recycle, they'd have to collect it all and then recycle it and ship it off to this special place. And they found out that using like water and lemon juice would like end up saving them. Like, and you're just like, well, yeah, like who came up with, with that? But Which kind of ties into firefighting where that whole idea of like 200 years of progress and impeded by tradition, right? Where there can be closed-minded people that just, this is the way and never want to listen to anything else or, or they find a new way, then they, or that's the other one. They find a new way that they think is the, the next best thing. And then that goes down the rabbit hole where actually the old way was the best way. So this idea of being able to mentally go forward and back and embrace everything we know and putting it all together with what we know now and then choosing the path. A lot of people just don't want to spend the time to go back and rehash things and see if we're still doing it the right way. I think you're right about that. And, and that's the thing too, is like not everything's going to work the same for each person, right? So it's also figuring that out. And I think like it's, it's on people to kind of figure out where they fit in all this as well, right? I mean, it's, we kind of say sometimes that, and I know we're getting, we're starting to get sidetracked again here, but that idea of like, well, anyone can be a firefighter. It's like, well, maybe in some aspects, but in other aspects, maybe not. And that's okay, I think, to say that because I would never sit here and say that I would make a good accountant. It's like, can I do math? Well, yeah, I can do math, but that doesn't mean I can be a good accountant. And maybe that's a very simple example, but... No, but no one would accept the fact that we said everyone can be an astronaut, everyone can be a pediatric surgeon. No one would bat an eye if you said that. But if you say not everyone can be a firefighter, people will get bothered by that. Absolutely. And I, I think that we have to understand that everyone like fits a niche in society and not one is better than the other, but we always have a place and we just need to find our place. Where does your passion meet your gifts and your abilities? Right. So sorry to loop back a little bit to where we were, what you had asked me about my dad or whatever. So anyway, so his kind of academic thing kind of took off, but like what ended up kind of being on their radar was this idea of, or this fear that, that I would have RP, especially when I was being tested as I was getting into trouble, wasn't going through school and maybe wasn't trying all that hard. I think it really freaked my parents out because my parents thought, well, if the one thing that saved my dad and giving him a good career and a good life and allowed us, allowed my mom to stay at home and allowed this family dynamic that I think was, I was tremendously privileged to kind of grow up in. My parents just, they were like, without education, my dad would not have been able to do what he did. And they were like, if you have this, then we want you to be ready to take on the world and kind of, and it's just too bad because I'm like, that's just not, <laughs> that's not me guys. Sorry. But, but that being said, like, I think once they realized again, like that I didn't have it, and I think that once they realized that this was the best career for me, like my parents have always been extremely supportive as well. So it took them a little while to wrap their head around because I don't come from a line of these like working jobs, which is again, like I think, trust me, I have nothing but the most respect for people who get their hands oh, dirty. And it's funny because I went to university because that's just what everyone did. Like in my high school, like everyone, at the high school I went to, everyone just went to university. And it was Something probably like, encouraged by your family. hundred percent. But I, I went there because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And then once fire came on my radar, I was like, oh. And then I finally started working hard in school, right? So then it led to me, it's like how I did in Seneca and then how I did in our recruit training and all that. But so 
yeah, the academic stuff, I think was a lot of it was just my parents were fearful that I'd be left behind and they just didn't, they just wanted their best They're for being their good kids parents. kind of thing. Exactly. And I think it's worth putting in context. You mentioned that you feel very, you were very privileged to have these opportunities, but you guys also didn't have a lot of money. You mentioned that to me too. Like yeah. it, it's, it's one thing to mention you know, your father's big in academia so that people can build this idea that your family was very wealthy. Oh no. But well, I, I want things to be in context right, that, that right. wasn't necessarily the case. Well, anyone who knows if there's any assistant professors out there or whatever, we all know that the crazy thing is, and I, and again, some of these might be a little old. So if I'm not getting these numbers right, please forgive me. But the last I kind of heard assistant professors were probably making it somewhere in the sixties which is crazy to think of the level of education. Let's just say that my dad felt like he was underpaid for a lot of years. Because he was. Probably. Yeah. Let's, let's, well, it, yeah, I guess it ended up being. And be- some people in the fire service are overpaid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touching that one, Scott. <laughs> yeah. So like near the end of his career, when he was negotiating for his salary, he was able to negotiate very well. So my dad did very well for himself, but only in the last I don't even know what it would have been like. Not over eight, the arc of, the, of his career the way right. he should have. Not as a 40-year professor, right? right? Tenure, did he make tenure? Oh, was yeah, that, yeah. Like, yeah. My, he was a... Well, again, they gave I, him his I, own, he gave him his own area to work in. Well, I think just because the field was so new at the time, right? So I think that's why they kind of gave him that center to start. But yeah, I mean, my dad's been recognized as one of Canada's top innovative thinkers. And he's had a lot of, like I said, academically, he did very well. So I, mean, I think they've realized that he deserves this... It did come with some, I wouldn't say hardships. It's like we didn't, we never went without. I never went to school hungry, which the staggering statistics in the GTA now is something like 30% of kids go to school hungry. So, I mean, absolutely. I do want everyone to say, like, when I use the word privilege, I do believe I was privileged in the childhood that I had. My mom was at home. My sister was around. My cousin was down the road. That was a second home. Like, we always had a meal. We weren't that poor, but we never had a ton of extra money. So, but again, like my parents always saved a ton. They gave away a ton to charity as well. But with what they saved, we always rented this little, it was super humble, but it was great because it's what I call a cottage. Like, so we, they rented this cottage near Algonquin Park for, it was always kind of like four or five weeks of the summer. And it was, I would say it's probably pretty cheap, but it was super rustic. Not anymore, but it, it was. Yeah, probably not anymore, <laughs> but, uh, but it was super rustic, and, but it didn't matter because my sister and I, Growing up, like we'd be outside the whole time. We'd be chasing frogs. We'd be playing badminton. We'd be yeah, canoeing. Bikes, we'd be, yeah. yeah. It's like you you were, ne- the only days you were inside was when it was raining. And then that was the time you'd be like, oh, I brought a book. And then you'd read your book or whatever, right? And then bounce off the walls and your mom would kick you out in the raincoats <laughs> and you'd go chase whatever right. you would when it's raining. But I definitely, we didn't come from a, a rich family. And it, like, I also come from my grandparents, whatever they had, they would give away as well. So I was always raised with the idea of like, you have enough to feed yourself, you have a roof over your head, well, then you have enough to help someone else. And again, I don't want to sit here and try to play this altruistic picture of like, or some perfect family, because it's not, every family has its things. It's imperfect, yes. Right. Yeah. And I'm not but saying that like- you're grateful for what you had. 100%. And we always had enough to give. So that always showed me that it was, yeah, if you have enough to give, then you're not without. And your, your mom was a professional artist and you sort of that rubbed off on you a little bit too? You yeah. were- My mom's the ultra perfectionist. So she is a painter. Well, I guess back in the day, she was a painter, did realism kind of before she became a teacher. She illustrated a few things. And my mom is an incredible artist, but the, let's call it gift that I got from her is this perfectionism too sometimes where... Never seen it. Yeah, no. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Like she'd be painting this painting and it, I'd be like, oh, it's great. And she's like, no, no, it's not. I got to fix this and fix that. And then she'd work on it for two more weeks and you're like, I can't even tell what you did. But in her eyes, it was just so, 
but that's also helped me in a way too. So I like I, my dad became a hard worker, I think, because partly he knew that he needed to succeed in academia for him to have a career. And then my mom was hardworking at just kind of things, I hate to say it because I don't believe in like gender specific roles around the home, but she was incredible. I mean, we all know that a stay-at-home mom is is one of the hardest jobs. I mean... But your parents and their dynamic decided between the two of them the way they were going to structure the work in the house. Well, it was the, they, they knew that the end potential of my dad's earnings would always be higher than my mom's. It just made it sense just, at the time. At the time, that's just the way the dynamic played out, right. right? And the interesting thing is actually when my parents first started kind of really being, I guess, what they would call a serious relationship, my mom was a teacher because it was, it was before they went to France. And my mom supported my dad a lot. My dad was still in school a lot of the time. And I think he was working, but probably only maybe part-time or I don't know, whatever. And then my mom was kind of the, the bread earner at that point, right? It's never been a thing in my family where it was like, I made the money or I was just always like, this is the family's... What we do now. Yeah, it was always a group kind of thing. So I'm very blessed that way too, to have that dynamic where it's my grandparents, there was a lot of family around. So yeah, it was very kind of lucky that way. Yeah. And was it your grandfather that influenced your woodworking that you're into now? Yeah, very much so. So my grandparents lived in this home in Cambridge for years. And my dad and grandfather built that home. And yeah, my grandfather always had these like woodworking tools. And it's such a shame because I don't know what happened to a lot of them. But it's, I didn't fall into woodworking when he was alive. And it's something as I've gotten a bit older. And when I was in university, I used to work for a contractor to make money, pay for my tuition. And that kind of started rolling the ball towards me kind of learning to do renos. And then it was like, well, you start to learn how to use tools and then it just piqued my curiosity with wood. Because like wood's one of those amazingly beautiful things you can do so much with. And it's just, it's so adaptable and it's alive. And yeah, it's just something that I find really peaceful now. It's, it's something. And it's like, an artistic thing. Like absolutely. That influence sure. from your mom. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's amazing. These little, so I'm renovating a bathroom right now. And it had this weird little shelf area behind the bathtub. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this space. And it kind of became this tiled and it always just kind of became schmutzy and like kind of gross and. So when I was just tiling it a couple of days ago, I was like, well, why don't I build like a shelf? So I just like ran to the shop. I have a ton of wood in there, right? I have like literally stacks of live edge stuff. And so I just grabbed a couple of pieces of walnut, milled them down. And now I just made like a walnut shelf for the back of this tub. And I'm like, oh, this will be kind of cool. You can like put stuff here and if someone's taking a bath, they can put a candle in right, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just one of those. But it's, I know yeah. that's your style. You don't have to hide it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> But yeah, so it's just, it really kind of like opened the door to woodworking and seeing my grandfather do it growing up. And then, and then it was just one of those things too, where like, it kind of brings it back to what you were just talking about, my parents not having a ton of extra cash lying around. So when we moved from Coxwell and Girard, when I was like seven or eight, we moved into the actual boundaries of what they call the beaches area. So we lived kind of near Victoria Park and Queen there on this street called Neville Park. But the house they bought was off this lady from their church. And so she kind of swindled them. <laughs> And the house was not nearly as tip-top shape as she led on to be. So this led to my parents kind of going, we just took on a mortgage. And I remember the house at the time had baseboard heat. And the first time my dad got a bill, and it was, I, again, I can't remember when this would have been in whatever, the 80s probably. And, and my, my dad just fell over and he was like, he panicked. He was like, I don't know how we're going to afford this house. So that led to, we realized like all the windows were out of alignment and they were leaking like sieves to changing the whole heating system of the house. But there was no, it was kind of an interesting house. It was built on a ravine. So like each level, so my parents' master bedroom on the top back of the house had a sliding door to ground level and each level of the house had a sliding door to ground level, right? So the front of the house was four floors. The back of the house was one floor. 
And it was actually built as kind of like a duplex, which is, yeah, it was kind of weird. But anyway, so my parents ended up taking on the other issue being in a ravine near the beaches it had a lot of water issues. So there was a stream that kind of ran underneath the house somewhere. So like over the years, my parents, you know, would hire someone to do some work. And then my, like, I remember helping my mom when I was a kid, like my mom and I would be like digging up the side of the house to like do a little parging and, and, and putting some tar. And like, that was something, again, my mom, my mom and dad always just figured out how to make things work. Right. So, and what's also amazing that like my dad, even without sight is actually pretty incredible when it comes to building some stuff or actually being able to visualize how to build some stuff. So like my dad would figure out a solution and then he always found these contractors that he could work with. They would listen to what he wanted to like, what he had to say, and then they would kind of work together to find these solutions. So contractor they have now is like one of my dad's old engineering students who ended up getting into contracting. And that's why they keep getting this guy out because he's a nice enough guy and him and my dad will figure out these fixes to the, yeah, like working with your hands has always been, and I've always gravitated towards that too. I think my sister and I were both being more athletic than academic, I guess. It was just something that you just learn to kind of use these tools. And now it's like the ability to build your own table. Well, it's, I can build whatever table I want out of whatever wood. I can make it look whatever way I want. I mean, it's such a great skill. And then also being able to like renovate your own house. There isn't anything, I just won't touch the electrical panel. (laughs) But besides that, right. It's like, these are all skills you learn and you kind of do. And I mean, I know you're renovating your house and you just, these are things you do that you you start tiling one thing and you're like, oh, that didn't really work out. And, and then you tile the next thing and the next thing. And then before you know it, you've done, I've probably done 20 bathrooms at this point for friends and family and all this. And it's like, well, now there's not much to shy away from. And the woodworking has kind of gone that way too. But what I really think is interesting about the woodworking to me is like, it's these rabbit holes, right? We've talked about this too, where what I love about woodworking is the depth of which woodworking can go. You go down these YouTube rabbit holes and you watch these phenomenal craftsmen build these things. And every time I watch something, I always think like, so I don't watch a lot of TV, but I'll watch like hours of table building on YouTube and stuff. Or I went, I think I was telling you, I went down the rabbit hole a few months ago about these like Japanese wood carvers that would carve their like paintings out of wood. And they would take years to carve these things and they would have these lenses that would, they could work under and they would carve like hair. I I watched this for like two hours and it's just, I have no interest in doing woodworking like that, but I was so floored by the amount of skill and craftsmanship that it would take to build that. So what I love about woodworking is the constant challenge of learning a new skill. So what if you screwed up? You learn something from it or it becomes a feature of the table or whatever, but this is the kind of learning that I love. And I think maybe, I think we always want to like put ourselves in these boxes and say like, I didn't do well in school, so I'm not good at learning. Right. Well. Or I don't like reading. Right. Or. Yeah. Well, what are you reading? Right. Right. Have yeah. you been introduced to the right books? Right. Have you been introduced to the right hobbies, the right skill sets, the right, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, like I hated school and then I went to fire college and I was like, oh, this is amazing. And really now there's literally no excuse for having no access to everything. If you want to look hard enough, you can find anything and get a passion for it. Well, that's it. If you have a bit of wood, you don't need fancy tools. If you have a bit of wood in your garage or whatever, I mean, again, we're talking about woodworking here, but it could be anything, but yeah. And it's, it's interesting how life kind of like changes these, even now, like my hobbies and interests have changed because of my shoulder. Yeah. Which is what I want to get into next. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so that's kind of changed like how I've gone about doing a lot of things in life. It's amazing this woodworking too. It's like, it opens up these doors, like anything in life. When you take on these challenges, like I remember I was, 
I had this old car at the time. So there's these roads in North Carolina. I don't know if ever it's called the tail of dragon and stuff. So I took yeah. this car down with a buddy of mine. A lot of motorcyclists. Right? A lot of motorcyclists go down. Yeah. So I like, I had a classic car at this like little sports car at the time that since sold regrettably, well, not regrettably, I wanted to sell it, but anyway, whatever, it's moved on to a better home. Um, so we, we took the car down there and we pulled over at the side of the road and there was this guy who had this pickup truck and he had this trailer with this massive walnut log, this big burled end and just this beautiful piece. I mean, it must've been six, seven feet across. And I just stared at this thing thinking like, man, the things you could mill it, whatever thickness you could, oh man, what the I tables, would do to you. The, oh yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I just, and again, I just wandered up to this guy and yeah. it was like, Hey man, you like into woodworking and just create this whole, I sat at the side of the road for like an hour talking to this guy about woodworking and his plans for this piece of wood. And it's like, it's not something you see every day. It's not. And it's, but these are what I love about life in a lot of ways, right? It's like you expose yourself to these things and it just opens up a door. Like if woodworking wasn't part of my life, I would have glossed over that. But then again, if something else intrigued me, maybe I missed something that somebody else would have noticed, like somebody's garden or. So it's really what you put your attention on. Absolutely. Right. And it's, to your point, there's something for everyone. It's just finding what speaks to you. There's no excuse for boredom as I find, but. Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned your shoulder. So I wanted to ask you about athletics and sports and how that sort of evolved through your life because it's taken a distinct turn, say, in the last couple of years from when I first met you. You played golf at a higher level when you were younger. Yeah, I kind of got into it in like the high school level. So I was introduced to golf by my sister and her then boyfriend. Yeah, I kind of fell in love with it. I think a lot of, growing up in Canada, a lot of hockey players just gravitate towards golf a bit. Obviously, we can sit there and uh, I don't know what the exact connection is, but anyway, it just seems to be a thing, but. Smashing something with a stick. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different rules here and there, but. And it's highly competitive. <laughs> it can be. Yeah. It can be. Yeah, I just played a bunch of sports. I just had an interest in just being active and playing sports. So I played some hockey and baseball and some golf I always did okay, but I was never the most gifted athlete, whatever. And but you weren't a hack though. You were, you played no. at a higher level. Yeah, I wasn't a hack, but I mean, I also knew like there's a difference between like being good compared to your peers. Well, you weren't a weekend warrior. You weren't a professional. Right. Uh, I mean, the there's, and there's a lot of people in between there, right? Sure. It's you're decent, but yeah, there's no chance you're becoming pro. <laughs> and then I played a bit of football and, and actually the, that kind of introduced me to kind of like a few injuries where... I remember this one guy just <laughs> absolutely cleaned my clock. Like I remember seeing him coming and all I remember seeing next was the blue sky because he had just bowled over me and well, he knocked me out because- Well, I was, no pun intended because I think you thought at some point your alarm clock was going off. Was that what- Yeah. So so the the guy hit me and then like I have no memory of anything for a few minutes and then I kind of woke up to a few people standing over me looking at the blue sky. Yeah, it was weird because we were getting back into the huddle. We were playing at this field, this local high school near us. And this like, it was a truck that was backing up beside the school. So I'm assuming it's like one of those, like whatever school board trucks or whatever. And the backup alarm for the truck, I actually thought it was my alarm going off. So I was so, I didn't know where I was. Like the guys were trying to bring me back to the huddle. And I was like, I didn't know what was happening. We've learned a lot about concussions, but back then it was like, you kind of sucked it up. Like I remember having a few playing hockey and then skidding back to the bench, throwing up after just being this one time on a breakaway and this guy got tripped from behind and then slid into the boards head first kind of thing. Coming back, throwing up and the coach is like, all right, well, get out there. I don't think it was, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus because I don't think it was something that they knew about either. I just don't think there was the knowledge. No one was malicious. Exactly. I don't think it was anyone just, because this wasn't at levels where you're like, oh, like if I do really well at this level, some scout is going to call me up to the NHL. Like it was never at that. Yeah. There's no real vested interest. It was anyway, I don't think it was malicious and it wasn't malicious. 
Yeah, so that kind of led to some head injury stuff, which now you know about concussions, and I've had a whole bunch of them just through different sports, so I kind of have to be careful. And that kind of led me away from contact sports, which then kind of brought me more to the golf and kind of stuff like that, which, yeah, it was fun, but it was also kind of like tailing off where, yeah, sports were kind of just becoming more recreational. And then what I really found is that that was kind of a time when I started thinking with the fire department. So what ended up kind of happening is I, I grew a love for going to the gym. So I love going to the gym and doing weights. And it was just kind of like, it was my time. It was my time of the day where I could put on some music, put on some headphones, put on my hat, pull it down low, not be mean to anyone at the gym, but I'm not there to talk. I'm there to work. And it was my time to, and I loved doing weights. And so I would do kind of a lot of cardio and weights and stuff, trying to get on the fire department. As we all know, back in the day, the Gledhill Shaw, Gledhill Shaw test or whatever it was called, get on the treadmill and test your VO2, blah, blah, blah. So at that point too, also realizing that, there were certain kind of physical things, so certain traits that I need to kind of engage with to make myself better at this job, right? It was always something I felt was a big part of our job, and I still feel that way. And I really do think that fitness is something that I don't think it's a question whether we should have it. It's a part of, you should, you're being paid to it's provide not a, a service. It's not, right. It's like you should be fit on this job. So It's non-negotiable. Exactly. Yeah, I got into the, like the weight training and then for a while, it's amazing how like when you look back on yourself and you realize, but I stopped doing cardio for a while and then I just eating a ton of calories and just working out as much as I could. Because if anybody knows you, you kind of go all in on things. (laughs) Well, it's interesting you say that because like, it's funny. I had this realization, this epiphany not that long ago where I always kind of said, I was like, I've never had an addictive personality. And I've just never had an addictive personality to substances. So I just, that's usually... We equate addiction Addiction, right, right, to gambling or to substance and stuff. Where I'm like, oh, Oh. wait. (laughs) There's a reason why I have the shoulder injury, which we can get into next. But yeah, it's if I do something and I like it, I typically go pretty deep. It's like woodworking. It's like, I don't dabble in it. I'm like, oh, I like this. And then literally a week later, I'm looking at buying a $6,000 planer because I'm imagining that... 13 tables I want to build over the next like five years or whatever. Right. So, and it doesn't tend to be something I think you assume you're going to get into and then it tapers off. Like you get into it and you actually go after these things and you, for a time when it holds your interest, you do them. It's not like you buy an exercise bike and you end up hanging clothes on it in, in the bedroom. That's not <laughs> no, what this is. It's a good point. I don't know what it is. Like maybe I play around with things a bit before I really know I want to commit to it and then go, okay, I'm in. And, and then it kind of, I'm in, but yeah, there is a bit of a, I don't know, you call it an addictive personality or whatever, but it's, yeah, like when passions I- Passions for things, but, but also then where that comes with is knowing your limits. Yeah. And that's where I really, that's where I struggle with. That was my lesson that I, so anyway, so like in going to playing baseball when I was a kid, I pitched a lot. And back then there was no real kind of rules on what kind of pitches you threw, all that kind of stuff. So I remember walking home from playing, of course, because, you know, my parents wouldn't drive me. So walking home and like my arm, like shaking, and I was like eight or 10 years old, my arm hurting like hell and never thought anything of it. Because you're just like, oh, this is what happens when you pitch. This is just normal. You never, what do I know that's any different, right? So And then as we were just talking about, I started going to the gym more and more, and then I stopped doing cardio. And that for a while, I just kind of wanted to see, I'm also fascinated by human physiology in terms of how we can change our own bodies. I I mean, it's it's fascinating, I find. But I just was kind of like, hey, I wonder how much muscle I could put on in a couple of years. So I just stopped doing cardio. And and it wasn't for bodybuilding or 
whatever. I just was curious. Just a fascination I had. You're a self-experimenter. Right, exactly. So I kind of went down that rabbit hole. And it's funny, like when I look back at pictures now, I was like, oh, wow, you that was a little much. I went a little too overboard there, which again, as you spoke to, like I don't do well at <laughs> kind of going half in. But what really derailed that, and it's, I mean, it, it's funny because at the time... I was doing this incline bench and it was always like, if you don't touch your chest, you're cheating kind of thing. Well, especially on an incline, your shoulders are going way past 90. And I've learned now what kind of pressure that puts on your shoulders. So I kind of felt this little pop thing and I was like, oh, whatever. We all do. You ignore it. It'll get better, whatever. So it's sore for a while, but you're like, whatever, it'll get better. A year later, I'm at the gym and it's, it's not better. Like it's getting worse and worse and worse. So I'm like, I gotta go. Like I probably... The little pop was some tear. So I'm like, I don't know if I... If I stretch it a little bit, if I get get a massage... It'll just fix itself. I keep exercising. I'm young. It'll fix itself. And after a year, I was like, okay, this is is not going away. So I went to the doctor. They sent me to see some surgeon or whatever. And I was expecting them to say like, hey, you tore your rotator cuff or something and or a ligament or something. And we're just going to have a little bit of surgery and you'll be fine. So the surgeon comes in the room. And I, I do understand that there's... Please forgive me. I've had lots of family who have had cancer and stuff. So I can only imagine what getting a really bad diagnosis is. But again, for me at the time, the doctor said, you need a new shoulder. The shoulder will last seven years. You need to find a new job. You'll never do athletic, anything athletic again in your life. You'll never do weights. You'll never work out. You'll never, thinking like shoulder, man, like I can't do anything. Like I can't paddleboard. I can't water ski. I can't ride a bike. Throw a ball. Throw a ball, like anything. The room started spinning. I was like, what is happening here? Like, this is insane. So it's funny, like where the surgeon was, my GP was like down the, the hallway. And I, so I walked back over there and I was like, this knock, is- Knock, knock, knock. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is crazy. And right. she's, so she had worked with this phenomenal doctor, this Dr. Gallia in Toronto. So I went to see him and then they started a course of like PRP on me. And then it was the idea of being like, am I a candidate for stem cells? And if I get stem cells, it's like, would I- benefit from treatment in North America, or am I going to get stem cell treatment in Japan, Germany, Panama? One of those, because the regulations are different. There's a lot more they can do there. And we're a little, North America's a little bit behind with stem cell stuff. But anyway, that's a whole other, I don't want to get you into trouble here with people listening to this podcast. (laughs) Or you can go to Russia and get a bear arm or something. Like they'll just. That's what I asked. I was like, can you just take it off and give me some bionic arm that I can like crush coconuts and like, you know, auto extrication, just like rip the car door off. Like, so yeah. So then I went out and see this guy, had a whole bunch of imaging done. This guy was like, he's a sports doctor. He's like worked with Tiger Woods, Donovan Bailey, Ray Lewis. If anyone's a hockey fan, like he's the guy who kind of got Shane Corson who had the bad neck. Forgive me. Sorry. There's a Maple Leaf that had this really bad neck and then he ended up helping him, whatever. So this is the guy to go to kind of, it's also like the connections they have. Anyway, so did a bunch of imaging. Sorry, I don't mean to bore people. Had a bunch of injections. Then they went to like kind of cortisone, but he's like, well, cortisone's grapes. It's temporary, but then it'll degenerate your shoulder even more. And I wasn't 40 at the time. I was 38. This was a couple of years ago. And they were like, yeah, like you're going to need to do something about this. So I went, they sent me to see the Blue Jay surgeons, the, sh- the shoulder guy. So I went to see that surgeon, Dr. Hodgins, and he's phenomenal if anyone needs some shoulder work done. But so they looked at me and they were like, yeah, like you need a replacement. So they tried to delay it as long as possible. But I mean, it was getting to the point, it's funny because I'd written the captain's exam at that point, And I was having a conversation with one of our DCs at the time about coming off the trucks. Because I had full strength, but I just didn't have range of motion was getting worse and worse. I couldn't turn on my own bottle. And I was like, this is, I do not want to be a liability to a crew. If something does go south, it's like, yeah, you can do the job 99% of the time. But what about the 1% 
And I could not live with myself if I was like, I'm responsible for someone else, crew member getting hurt because I couldn't do my job. Yeah, my shoulder failed when I needed to lift them out or something. Exactly. That's a no-fly zone for me, right? So, And that's when you came to 209 and joined our crew as well. Yeah, so that was a little, well, that was a little later because at that point, so it's funny, the surgeon actually called me the next day. And it was, this was like right at the beginning of COVID when they opened things, when they closed down all the surgeries and they opened them back up for the first time. And he was like, you're the number one guy on the table. So he's like, the, literally the morning surgeries opened. I was on the table at 7 a.m. And the prognosis from him was amazing. I mean, it was, your shoulder's going to last 20, 25 years. You can do your job just fine. You'll never have full range of motion, but you'll have 95% of your range and you'll have, pretty much have full strength. And this was our conversation. Part of the other podcast we could have recorded on the way over here was that <laughs> if you just trust the person with the diploma on the wall all the time, and you're not your own self-advocate or have your spidey sense of, about you and know your body or that I've had a similar experience of having a, I could have made a choice and it would have drastically affected my entire life. And I went seeking elsewhere and, and I'm fine now. Like it's perfect. Yeah. Second opinions are or thirds or fourths. Right, or, yeah. exactly. It's like, you know, it probably gets to the point where if you've gone to 10, 12 doctors and they all say the same thing, sure. maybe that's yeah. um, unfortunately. My mom said over a number of times over the years that you kind of have a sense of what is right. Right. And when you hear it, you'll know it. You have a sense of like what you need. Right. You just can't put words to it, but sometimes you hear it a couple of times or from the right person, like, okay, yes, that's it right there. It's like an intuition almost, a self, Absolutely. a body intuition. And there's also that, I mean, there's a joke that, I'll butcher this, I'm sure, but it was like, like, what do you call someone who finished dead last in medical school? Right, doctor. Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like there's bad doctors, there's bad sure. firefighters, there's bad yeah. whatever accountants, there's bad everything. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunately, some people just want to be doctors, even though they may be, should have been something else. You got to sort it out by the right person and you got put on the right path. Yeah. So then that surgery, of course it changed my life. I don't want to be overdramatic here, but it really, it changed a lot of things in terms of me being able to be active again. And it's totally fine by me because I look at the way I was working out and I realize now that, yeah, it's like you're strong as hell, but when all you're doing weights, it's not a practical strength, especially for the job. Like you go through bottles quickly, you're carrying a lot of muscle mass that just isn't practical muscle mass. And again, not to judge anyone who chooses to do that, but it's just, I've figured for the way I want to perform at work, it's not you need a balance you need more of a balance so now i find and you've been an advocate for this is a lot of like body weight workout it's amazing we can do a trx bands and a few basic little implements right so doing that mobility and then yeah exactly which i do need to get better at and just conversations we've had about stretching and stuff too which i know i need to get better at something i think a lot of us especially men maybe don't do enough of and it kind of opened this world of cycling to me which I was into cycling a while ago, maybe like 12, 13 years ago, and I rode a little bit. I would say not very much at all. I mean, I went for a few group rides and whatever. And then something about after shoulder surgery and it just clicked. I was like, I want to get a bike again. I want to start riding. And it's just great to have that mentality of, okay, it's not focusing on what I can't do right now. Like, what can I do? Right. Well, my legs aren't broken. I have to be fit. I think everyone in society should be fairly fit. And again, mm-hmm. I know everyone has, certain people have limitations, don't get me sure. wrong. But if you're capable. If you're capable, I think moving is important, sure. right? So it's get off the couch. And even if it's walking around the block a few times, even if it's, doesn't matter what it is, but I, again, for our job, I think that bar is a little higher. So it's like, okay, well, how can I get a strong leg, strong core, up my cardiovascular capacity? Let's, well, biking can do that. And then I can kind of do my balance of body weight workout and kind of keep my strength that way with certain things. So yeah. And then talk about rabbit holes, man, this biking is, <laughs> holy smokes. Well, and your um, stature and your physical traits have drastically changed, like your body changed. And right. Did you struggle initially with 
was it an identity hit? Was there any depression or something like that that crept in? No, I've been really lucky, I think, with, and that's a whole other conversation too, but I've been really lucky, I think, with depression. It's never really been something that's been hard for me. It's never been too much of a cross I've had to bear so much. So I wouldn't say it was depression. It was more, there was an adjustment of identity for sure. Right. Because like a reevaluation. It, yeah. It's like, you know, and again, it's not that you're looking for this affirmation for people, but like you'd go places and you just, you're always like kind of like the big fit guy. Sure. Right. So like, and I, sorry, I'm not a big guy. I just mean like, but you'd work out and it's, if it's, people would notice that and be like, oh, you're the fit guy or whatever. Right. So, or you get used to say at work, being able to move right, something a certain way. Right. And now you can't, and you're thinking, is that good? Like, should I be able to, like, if you can't throw the ladder the same way, it can be hard to, your, your normal of moving equipment and operating is a certain way. Right. And then when that changes, you think, am I not, is this enough? That's what I've always struggled with. Like, is this enough? Am I strong enough? Am I fit enough? And you can't be pushing to the extreme all the time. There has to be a point where you realize, okay, this is enough. But when you are used to a normal for you and then that changes, you have to question. Oh, 100%. Is it a balance for you? Is it enough for you? Well, I think that's the hard thing too, is like when you think about, when you go down the rabbit hole of say, like I did with weight training, which was like the idea of like getting stronger. It's so incremental over such a long period of time. Like I think I put on about, I think it was 27 pounds of muscle, but it took like three and a half years, I think. So th- that was part of what I realized too, is I didn't realize, I think, like where I had gone to, where it became too much. And then the pressures I was putting on my joints working out. And I found out afterwards that part of the struggle with my shoulder was like a big thing was like throwing a lot when I was a kid pitching, the heavy weight training that I was doing. And there's probably a genetic portion of that too. My grandmother had bad shoulder arthritis. You learn how to do these things and it's like, you're right, you pick things up and you're like, well, this is light. And then it became heavier. Like I just couldn't do much. I was doing like rehab for my shoulder, but they're like, you can't really do this. You can't really do that. So there was a time there where you go from like being fit to being kind of not as fit. And then you're right. It's your identity where you're kind of like, well, what am I now? Or like, and again, to your point, am I okay doing my job the way I want to do my job? Right. And the, what am I now question is huge on even mentally. Yeah. Right. And that maybe that's why people don't push out of their comfort zones because then you get into a place where it's like, what am I now? And you have to leave behind what you weren't. And even when it's an unhealthy thing, not what you were doing, I'm just saying, speaking yeah. in generally, that you don't want to leave that and get into a what am I now? It's more, it's easier to just stay as what you know you are or what you think you are. I totally agree. And I think what I've learned though is every time I go through one of those moments, I come out of the other side. I think that's the opportunity to then challenge yourself to kind of go, what am I? And actually do some self-reflection discovery. And I find most of the time you come out of that or especially this experience, I would say I'm say I'm a better firefighter. I'm I'm more well-rounded physically. I'm in my low forties and I am better all-round fit than I was five, six years ago when I was at my peak or whatever you want to call it of strength at the gym. And maybe as empathetic as you were as a person, maybe you're more even more empathetic to people that have injuries or have uh, physical challenges. Like it adds a, a layer of that too. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I've, you know, growing up with a blind father, like I've always had that as well, where like, it's funny. Some people are like, oh, what's it like growing up with a blind father? I'm like, I don't know. What's it like growing up with a sighted father? I always just tell people it was hard to play catch with them, but that, like, <laughs> But there were so many other things that I got. But yeah, I mean, it's 100%. Like if someone has a major injury and they're suffering through that pain, it's like near the end, I, I was almost becoming an insomniac before surgery because anytime I would fall asleep, if I would move, my shoulder would flare and scream up in pain. So to give anyone an idea, like when they ended up doing the surgery on me, like the ball joint at the top of my shoulder ended up being almost kind of triangular because it was so worn out of shape kind of thing. 
I was actually the doctor. I was like, why didn't you show me? Like, you should have kept it. And he's like, oh, that's kind of weird. But anyway, <laughs> well, I just have interest, right? I was sure. just curious to what these things, but he said too, he's like, you have one of the worst shoulders that he's I've ever seen. And he's like, I don't even know how you were functioning. So, but that's just to the point. It's like, you just learn to kind of cope with these things. You just learn these workarounds and whatever. And then I think sometimes you don't realize how bad it is, but then the opportunities that come from that too are crazy. Like, yeah, it's like, I can't go to the gym and do something I was doing, but the reality is that probably wasn't the best thing for me. It's just what I became used to. Right. So the challenge then became like, well, what can I do that's different? And now cycling has opened up this world where it's like, oh man, like this is a rabbit hole I can now go down. And it's what I've realized too, as much as I love the gym and like that time where it's like the weight and you push and you like, you see progression and it's an amazing thing where you see the work you put in come out in like a weight where you're like, oh, I could never bench whatever. And you can, and you're like, oh man, it took three years, but I got here. What I've realized though, is that like the cost of that can sometimes come at your body where it's like you push too hard. We talked about that addictive personality with me. It's like, that's where the addiction comes in is like, I'd work out six days a week, whether I should have been or not. And this is where I really realize my shortcomings is I have a hard time listening to the part of me that says I shouldn't do it for a reason. So it wouldn't be uncommon for me. We have a really rough day at work. I've put in a couple hard workouts. I didn't get any sleep. And it's like, well, if I don't go to the gym, then it's like, I'm being lazy. And it's like, no, just take this day because you need to recover. Part of health, it's like, we all know, it's like, you know, you don't grow at the gym, you grow, like grow at home or whatever the saying is. But there's something to that, right? I mean, everything can be an extreme, but it's, it's trying to listen to your body more. And so the cycling too has kind of opened up doors of different types of fitness, but it's also opened up the door of, one thing I love about it is this suffering. I love getting on the bike and suffering. And like, when I tell this to my friends, they all think I'm crazy. And I think they know me from being someone who can't turn that switch off. But what I've tried to explain is I think in some ways it balances me a lot more. So it allows, like we've talked about this too, where you have a really soft way of being in society. Everything's just abundantly available. I'm not talking about people who are homeless or don't have disposable income or whatever, whatever. But you want something, you order it and it shows up to your front door the next day. It's like, I'm hungry. I walk to the fridge and get something. To food. There's no... Don't get me wrong. I think we live in a day and age where there's a lot more pressure on people and a lot more challenges for people in terms of economics, in terms of mortgages, in terms of daily living and technology and identity. I believe this is almost some of the hardest times we live in. However, the flip side of that is I think we've developed this ultimate softness in our bodies in a way. And I don't mean to say softness in terms of like the idea of like it being fat, but we don't challenge ourselves. Right. So the cycling for me became one of these really kind of aha moments where I'm like, man, I get out on the bike and that's what I mean by suffering. I don't mean that I'm, I'm not a masochist trying to hurt myself, but I think it's healthy and some level of suffering where it's like, I might dread a workout I have coming up and, and I do it and I'm working hard on the bike and I'm, there's those moments where you're like, you could just quit. And then you go, no, I'm not, because I know afterwards if I quit, how I'm going to feel. But then it's how you feel when you've you're done that workout too. So, but then it's that balance of knowing when to listen and when not to listen. Exactly, and I've even tried to get help for that. Right, where I now wear one of these straps to try to help me go. Hey, you had a good sleep tonight. It's easy for me to now track and say like you had three hard workouts in a row today. Yeah, you can get on your bike, but go easy. And I have a really hard time. There are countless times I say I'm going to go easy on the bike today, and literally one person passes me on the road, and I'm like, oh no. And it doesn't matter if it's a group or one person. I'm just like, this is, and it's just, but this is something I need to work on. This is my. Well, it's not, not just you I mean that for the longest time, like Zeus and I go for a ride. I'm like, oh, we'll just go for a spin. Right. You get out there and you're just riding you hard. Because there's only one speed you ride at. And I always tell people, I mean, there's a reason for it. When I'm like, I'm a 40 year old guy 
with an artificial shoulder because of the way I treated my body. And I kind of look at this kind of going like, well, I want to be at 70. I want to be able to ride my bike or play golf or do whatever. And if I don't watch it, then I got to be careful. I got to monitor and I got to listen to myself. So it's like, why wouldn't I do that? We preach that to anybody when it comes to their mental health. So if I'm going to preach that about any kind of health, whether it's mental or physical, then I'm a hypocrite if I don't do it myself. And the growth physically making the positive growth mentally and physically are both incremental. And sometimes the degradation can be incremental, but at some point the degradation becomes like base jumping. Like it goes from becoming incremental if you're not listening to it to becoming drastic mentally and physically. And it's a lot harder. So the more you learn to listen early and you may not always be able to make the right choices. I mean, even in just in context this past weekend, I was just telling you, we were talking about, you've been off for a couple of shifts. So we got really beat up Friday. I go and teach live fire and do flashover at the academy for Saturday. We had to call it partway through the day because it was super hot. And we, we were really, like, if we pushed it, we were all going to be. So that was a smart choice, but we pushed it. Did the right things when I got back home to recover, but still really beat up. And then we got beat up again yesterday <laughs> and all night. And yes, sleep is crucial. And maybe you shouldn't always be losing sleep, but I, I probably could have slept this morning and we could have called this. But I recognize my point is this morning I had to move a couple things around the house. Even doing those small physical things, my heart rate jumped up and I felt winded. That's exhaustion. And I just knew today doing anything other than this, sitting and talking with you, is not in the cards. Or I sleep for four or five hours and then I could probably do a workout in the afternoon. But it's knowing that... A plus B equals C, right? And not to fit your world into what you want it to be when reality is telling you something different. And I think it's interesting too, because I think that that awareness is so important when it comes to our job, where you come to work, hopefully in a position where you can be physical if it needs to be, right? And I think far too often, sometimes we're like, hey, you know, I'll have this like brutally hard workout the day before I come in. And then you want to do like a leg workout at work and you're like, whoa, man, this is... Or I'll recover at work. Right. Exactly. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, you'll recover at work and then the tones go off at 7 a.m. and you got a industrial fire and you're there for 12 hours. And it's like, well, am I ready to come in? And it's, I mean, it's a slippery slope too, because like, I know you want to stay fit. It's just, but you're right. I think it's about aligning yourself in a way that you're kind of like, okay, if I don't do this hard workout now, what if I, instead of going for a four or five hour ride, what if I went for two and then did it moderate paced? And then I save that ride for the day after or whatever. I just modify workouts. And that's totally doable too. I mean, there's no structure, even if you're on a structured plan, there's nothing that says you can't, because I was doing that for cycling for a while. I was working as coach for a short time, but with shift work, it's not like a nine to five where you go, okay, Sunday's your long ride because you have Sunday off. Well, obviously can't do that because we work Sundays, Sundays here and there, but yeah, you have to modify it where, okay, like I work tomorrow, so I don't want to do this workout now. I'm going to do, I'm going to flip it around and And last time I checked, I wasn't going to join the Tour de France. So if I flip a few workouts and whatever, push a few less watts, well, so what? It is what it is. So if you pull a bit of Goggins in and you pull a bit of Jocko in, but you don't need to be Jocko or Goggins. It's funny. Like we look at some of these as like the benchmark, right? And who am I to speak on their lives? I'm not from what I've heard about Goggins is now he's had a lot of issues with his, I believe it's his ankles or knees or it's unrealistic that the stuff doesn't catch up and we all think it won't. And he speaks to it too. He says, you know, 100%. you know, don't do what I do, 100%. but take what I do as something right. to push you in your own way. Right. And I think what he's always been very clear on, and I give him all the respect in the world for this is like, I do this because I need to. Here's why. Yeah. And I need to. And right? his book he's got makes his that demons clear. and he's got his, yeah. and look, everyone, that's what I'm saying. Like 
everyone's just trying to manage their life. I don't mean that as a judgment. It just means that the lessons I've learned from my injuries and stuff is I'm trying to learn to moderate that. And like, who am I to, because I'm the worst that way. I'll tell a friend first thing. I'll be like, we could have a conversation in the morning. I'll be like, Scott, you shouldn't work out today, man. I literally did the same thing you did. And I'll be back there and you'd be like, what are you doing? And I'll be like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's so easy yeah. sometimes, right? It's like to see the other and not what we, we do ourselves. But I am sadly, still trying to learn those lessons now. It's something I've never been very good at. But maybe we, you know, you need to look to Goggins, but you also need to look to Ronnie Coleman. 100%. Right. So here's what the cost, there's a cost, there's right. a cost to everything. Any resource, right? And that's why the same thing where like, I try to advocate to people too. Like, and again, it's not like I go up to random people, but if people ask me about my injury, I'd just be like, look, this is kind of, I think why, yes, there was a genetic proponent, but the flip side is I didn't listen to my body. And if I could go back and do it again, I'd ne- I wouldn't change where I'm at now, because I think I'm in a better, healthier place now. But if I could choose to not have a, an artificial shoulder, yeah, of course I would. Like it is a little limiting at times, but it's at the point now where like, I think the more, ironically, the more you use it, the more strength you have in there. And I work really hard to stay working out and doing those body weight exercises so that my shoulder doesn't become an issue. And there's a lot of other things other than just the pacing your workouts or spacing your workouts that affect it, right? Diet, Absolutely. sleep and everything. Absolutely. That yeah. Together, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a step back now and talk to me about your recruit experience. I think we sort of touched on getting on more or less, but if you want to tie a little bit of that in, you can leading into your recruit experience and then your rookie years and sort of sort of walk me through the start of your fire career. I had worked hard, crappy jobs. So I think when I was kind of going through fire college and trying to get onto the department, I definitely had an appreciation. I've always think I've had an appreciation of what the job is and and how blessed I am to have the job. Yeah, it's been something that working hard towards getting it to and kind of like defying that idea of like, hey, it takes seven to 10 years. Like I always tell people, and it's such a cliche, but it's so true, right? It's you work hard towards something and all of a sudden like one offer comes in, all of a sudden you get 20 offers and what really is one of those kind of things. And it's just, yeah, just working hard and trying to keep kind of going through it. The crude experience was interesting. I mean, like it was a, a great little group. There were seven of us and it was in 07, I think. Yeah, we were a tight-knit little group, which was was definitely helpful. And I think the thing I liked about the small recruit class, there was nowhere to hide, right? So even if you wanted to try to, if you're like, oh, I'm weak in whatever, say it's ladders or whatever, you're like, I, you can't hide. So it's, you just go through the drills, you do it. So I was really lucky that way that I had a small class that, and I think that's the thing is like, I think as a recruit, you don't want to be that guy or, or girl or whoever being like the one who can't do ladders. But the at the end of the day, like, you have to suck up your pride a bit and kind of go like, I'm in recruit training. Like this is the time to say, I don't know enough about ladders and to learn about. Or, and recognize you know, where you need to put the work exactly. in. Exactly. That's all right? it is. Exactly. And our class was really good that way too. Like we had, one of our members hadn't done pre-service, but was a medic. So, and then not to any fault of his own, but with some things, he was just a little behind and he was, he was sharp guy. So he took, he got things pretty quick, but he was great at asking questions, but there was also none of us that would not help him out. If, and I, don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here saying like my ego so big that I knew everything either, but it was just like, Hey, you know what? You need a, an extra body to help you put up this ladder. I'll help and we'll work through it together. Kind of thing. And that's right? a cool so, thing in recruit classes. If there's going to be strengths absolutely. all around. So maybe he helped out more of the medical side. Oh, hundred percent. Oh right. yeah. Like, oh my, like a, exactly a million right. times over. Right. Like so you he, learned to lean on each other, which is a good segue into the job. And that's just life. We talk about these gray areas, right? Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And that's the beautiful thing about the fire department is there are so many different types of people. We all bring something. And that's part of, I think, the thing I've really liked. And I know, sorry, I know we're getting sidetracked, but it's what I really like about being an officer and dealing with people is trying to really find those things in each person. 
but hold fast to those fundamentals that you kind of do have to be able to throw a ladder. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's sorry. It's, I don't mean to say that you can't do the, yeah. Like, and by no means am I saying you lose that aspect of the job, but it's interesting to kind of like look at people and anyway, that's. Whatever. Or find out how to get everybody to the base of where they need to be. And then every moment have their strengths beyond the basic fundamentals. Sure. Right. And especially people too think they have limits. Like I'm not good at ladders. And then you run it through drills and you're really good at that too. Or like you show people a few things and they go, oh, oh, now I can throw that ladder. Now I am good at ladders. Right. Right. And then it's such a moment too. You could be on the job for six or seven years, always had this belief you're not good at something. And then all of a sudden you have the right person who shows you something. You go, oh, I'm not that bad at ladders. I can do these kind of things. And it's like that for anything in life. Right. I mean. Good instructor showing you what's possible. I always said it was like, I can't do cardio. And here I am on the bike now and crushing it. Turns out I can do cardio. <laughs> <laughs> turns out I was probably better at cardio the whole time. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but yeah, so like we had, uh, we had a great experience with our group that way. We were a very tight knit. We still get together. We did recently for our 15 year kind of anniversary, but the, the struggle at times, and I'm not going to sell anyone out because everyone who was training me at the time has since moved on or retired, but it was a struggle sometimes because at that moment, our training manual was this photocopied binder that what they used to do is if someone was injured or something, they would just allocate them a task of saying like, Hey, write a chapter on ropes. And you get some guy who was, or again, some woman, whoever, doesn't matter. Person, like who, yeah. yeah. Some person who doesn't have a background in ropes. And then they're trying to write this. And so just doing like whatever, asking people, doing Google search or whatever. And it just turned into this horrific. Menagerie. Oh, uh, it was a horrific training manual. We were still using that. And I think we were one of the first classes that actually ended up using the essentials, I think. So it was kind of like we were still bouncing back and forth. And Which I also that, isn't great. Uh, it, it, not, better than what we were, sure. you know, what yeah. was our, yeah. like, The official, bar was low. The bar yeah. was, well, couldn't have been much lower, but. Right. And then also like different instructors where it was frustrating where with a lot of stuff in the department, we're trying to align certain ideas of like SRDs, for example, where someone can say an SRD 45 and we all generally should know who's doing what role, where you are in the truck. So even 15 years ago, we all know how it was very different from like each crew would fight fires differently to let alone different shifts and all this kind of stuff. So not as our department, right? As one team. Exactly. Exactly. Different language, different tactics. Exactly. It'll work. It's fine. It will wing it. <laughs> and what ended up happening, so you get some of these guys seconded that would come in and train you for the day. So you get the the expert in auto X and you get two or three individuals come in and teach you auto X and then you get fire prevention and then whatever, all these things you learn. Well, the problem was, of course, like some person would come in and teach you their way of doing ladders. And one of our training officers at the time, I actually liked him, didn't have the best reputation, but I liked him quite a bit. He was kind of known for very smart guy, hard-nosed, but kind of had this reputation of being like, it's my way kind of thing. But he'd come in there and be like, well, what the hell are you doing? Like he'd throw a ladder, he'd ask you to throw a ladder, you'd throw the ladder and he'd be like, what are you doing? He's like, that's all wrong. It's like, that's literally what we were, there's that moment of self-reflection where you go like, am I totally off? And then you talk to everyone in the recruit, they're like, no, man, that's like, we were all told that yesterday. So that was the hard thing too, is there was no necessarily alignment where you get someone daily, weekly, you get some new person in and then the person who was doing your practical test would be different from the person who showed you. And it almost became, I felt like almost a scapegoat for a while where recruits could say, that's what I was shown, even if it wasn't. Or we weren't shown that. Or exactly. Right. It became the kind of the, the catch all of just like, oh, now I'm, it's a, you get a jail free card kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Where, Which is funny now because we've seen rookies and they've come to us and they've said that. And it's like, no, no, I know the person that taught you that. And I know they taught it to you. <laughs> yeah. There was one guy in particular. <laughs> they can go both ways. Right. And of course I'm not going to name names, but sure. it's, it's funny. Like we were, well, another gentleman we had, you had on your Jared Newcomb, who I have a ton of respect for. Right. So I was 
I was acting. So when I was, wrote the officer test before I was promoted, I was acting with Jared and we had an individual in and we were just training some ladder stuff and we were going through it and he's like, oh, I've never been shown that before. And again, like I don't work with this individual, so I, I don't know. But you know, the interesting thing is being an actor, you move around halls all the time. So whatever it was, like two weeks, a month later, I'm at a different hall, we're doing ladders makes the same mistake. And he's telling that officer, he's like, well, I've never been shown that. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> and I didn't, you don't want to embarrass the guy in front of people. But you take note. But yeah, like it was a mental note for me kind of going like, mm, nope. And I even like, again, when we were kind of together where it was more private, I even kind of said to him, I was like, you kind of said that, but I'm not trying to call you out, but like maybe there's something you should go over more because I know like whatever it was two weeks, a month ago, we did it with Jared. So the only problem I think in mistakes is when mistakes aren't learned. Yes. Because you'll make mistakes, I'll make mistakes. And the thing about making a mistake is like own it, be humble about it and learn from it. And if you do those things, it doesn't matter. Like I don't think, I would say most crews, most individuals on the fire department are very accepting when someone is like, hey, I screwed up and they work hard to learn from it and they own it and they are humble about it versus the person who denies it and tries to work around it or make excuses for it. And it's just kind of like, that's just, it makes it worse. Right. So. And we can make it almost easier for them to align with that by saying, like I'll say often, I don't expect you to do this perfectly. I right. just showed it to you 30 seconds ago. hundred percent. And there could be a drill I've done a thousand times and I might screw it up. Right. Right. Where I'm doing a drill with you guys and I'm like, oh man, don't do what I just did. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know what the hell happened yeah, there. Right. Which it's is going to happen no matter what. Exactly. Yeah. And like, we had a training drill not that long ago where we had something kind of, we were working with a few other people from different crews and a couple of very smart guys. And one of our training scenarios, it went a little haywire and it's just, it was no one's fault. Well, it was no one, sorry, it was no one's fault. It was just a very different way that someone was working with our crew and they would do things very differently than we did. And it threw our entire kind of system off. Which so, speaks to what you said before about having uniformity. and Right. And it was great to see that happen in that training environment kind of going like, oh, wow, this is how easy it happens. There's no heat. There's no real emergency. We're just doing, we're, I'm not to say it wasn't, it was a great scenario, a very useful scenario in the way we train it, but it wasn't one of those scenarios where it's like every second counts. We're like really trying to pretend this rescue It's kind of like, okay, let's go through the basics Let's nail all this down, then we'll progress kind of thing. And it was like interesting to see even in those moments that it was like, oh, wow, like this. Can go sideways. And it was like, an, and it was such a small thing that started it. And then how it just kind of went haywire. But yeah, so. Yeah, so you weren't seeing when you were being taught the basics at the time that you want to just learn what's in the box. Give me the way and I'll learn the way. And then we can get into the other ways later. But you weren't getting that and it was hard to discern what you should know. Yeah, it was hard to juggle it because I felt at that point, and it was also the way it was handled by some of the training officers where I think that they saw it as like, we just weren't. And it was the old kind of military way of like, you're just young, you should be yelled at. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, but I was shown this. So it wasn't trying to like work through it, kind of going like, okay, well, if you were shown that, that is a way of doing it. There's also this way of doing it, right? And that's fine. I have the ability to learn a few different ways of doing something. If you want to show me three different ways of showing a ladder, like I'm smart enough guy that I can like remember all three and figure it out and be like, okay, I like this one. Which we do now to show here's three options. Right. I don't care how you pick it exactly. up. Exactly. Learn them, choose the one for right. you. Exactly. Or adapt and find your own. Whereas I felt in our class, it was like, this is the way to do it because this is the way I do it. And this is the way my crew does it anyway. So it just, it kind of created some stuff. But at the end of the day, like I would say that overall the experience was great. And then when we graduated, then we were kind of given different assignments and yeah, I started at one of our busier halls, which was great for me. So I spent two years there. and 
I think I, I posted a while back about if you don't think that the rookies are aware of the training you're not giving them and that you're snowing them, you're wrong. They know, they pay attention. And you came in, you're a smart guy. You're a critical thinker. You know how you should be treated or how you should treat other people. So knowingly or unknowingly, crews are teaching their firefighters how to be. And also maybe they're teaching them how they might not want to be. Right. So you, sure. there may be some things you notice like, okay, I don't want to be like that. Oh my God. And we've all had those experiences. Well, and, and I was that guy in certain ways too. Like, I think I'm a very kind of respectful person and that doesn't mean anything else. But I do remember at one point, like I was working out and I was pretty brand new and we had this weird rule. So we were on days and nights at the time. And one of the officers, my first officers, you couldn't work out during the day. You could only work out at like three. Well, at the hall I was at, it was busy. So you have a lot of these fender benders during rush hour. And so you get busy. So it's like, well, you can only start working out at three. And then at four, we start kind of like washing the trucks and kind of getting ready for a changeover, which was at five, which is essentially 4.30. And I was always like, why do I have to wait? So I can I can eat lunch and I can sit a, sit on the couch and watch TV, but I can't go work out. Like, and at three, you that? get one call, that, that's it, it's done. And it's done, right? right? So... But in, like a hard lesson I learned is I was working out one day, again, trying to get this workout in. And my senior guys at that time were, I think, barely first class themselves. But Remy, Kaiserman, and, and I'll say their names because they're amazing guys, Remy and Fozzie. So they were started washing the truck while I didn't hear them. Anyways, the truck's like, I don't know, half, three quarters, maybe even fully washed. They started washing the other one while I come out. And I'm like, oh, man. And I got pulled into the captain's office by the two officers going like, you're the rookie. You should be the one starting to wash the trucks, not coming in halfway through it. And I'd look at that now and it's like, if I saw a recruit do that, I'd be like, Ooh, what's going on here? Right. Not necessarily like that. That's not going to like, it's not a red card. Like, oh my God, this person's the way they are or whatever, but it's like, okay, we'll I have to monitor this. But that was me. So like, I had every intention of, I worked hard. I learned, I asked questions. You I, never would not come out and wash the truck. <laughs> well, it's funny because like, I still do it. And some people are like, well, you shouldn't be like, and I, I really don't like that attitude of like, if you're an officer, you have other things to do. It's like, yes, that's true, but it doesn't mean I can't come wash the truck. It can't, doesn't mean I don't do the floors. It doesn't mean like, like I've done the toilets around the hall a few times. Like, I don't care. Like we're here for 24 hours. Like if the crew's checking the trucks, like I can go do the toilets. It's not anyway. But so I don't think there's that, but like, it was one of those things where I was like, oh my goodness. Like when I was young, like, yeah, I did learn that lesson where I was like, that was a screw up. And Fozzie and Rem were great about it, but they were like, you need to be out here. <laughs> And they were like, and I'm, they were right. And it didn't happen again. But like, that's okay too, to say that was a mistake I made. I learned from it. And it's like those, I'm grateful to those guys because it's the way they handled it too, right? You're talking about two really nice guys, but they didn't have to belittle or do anything like that. And it's like, you know, you could, they could tease me. I'm fine with that. But yeah, so. But there's the caveat of if in the circumstances, because you were given that limitation of only working out at a certain time, if that wasn't there, perhaps that wouldn't have happened. But yeah, but you also have to take ownership, right? Sure you do. Yeah. So it doesn't matter when they told me I could work out. I was still the rookie. and But I had a great crew at that first station. I learned a lot, not from day one maybe, but from a few months on when I could work out. I remember thinking, like, don't understand this rule. Like, this is a weird rule to me. And not to say you're trying to put the horse before the cart, but at the end of the day, I was like, if ever I choose to go down the path of writing the captain's exam, I was like, this is something I would never do. And I know everyone has their own rules and their own quirks and everyone's got their things, but... I like the way you frame that, though. You said, I don't understand this rule, not I don't like this rule, or this rule's stupid, or it shouldn't exist. It's more like, I don't understand it. So then it, what that means is you're going to reflect on it. You're going to think about it in context. You know, you're going to think about 
over the next while how you would put it into practice if like if you get in a different role like saying i don't understand something it, it shows that you're going to take time to think about it as opposed to like this is ridiculous i hate it right and making a judgment call immediately because there may be some rules that if we jump on them immediately without thinking i don't understand them that we could be wrong in our assessment of them it didn't make sense in the way that what I didn't understand, it was like, you're asking me to be less productive than I can be. Yeah, in this case. And I'm like, yeah, right, in this case. And it's just that, what's, that's what blew my mind. I was, yeah. I was like, I, I want to be a productive rookie. I want to be, like, why are you, like, handicapping that for me? And I know? think we're pretty good at picking up on work ethic and vibes from rookies, where we know, sort of, we learn pretty quickly about their style and who they are. Well, again, it's how does someone take that information? So if you pull someone aside and kind of say, hey, you know what, like, this is where you should be. It's like, do you get attitude back? Right. Or do you get, hey, you know what? Yeah. I remember I took it hard. Like when I got pulled into the captain's dorm because of that, I was like, wow. Oof, like, I, would I too. screwed up. Right. Like, and you work so hard to get there 100%. and you finally get it and you want it. Right. And, yeah. Well, and then it's like, and who the hell am I to be there working out when other people are sure. doing work when I'm not involved? Like everyone's picking up a shovel to dig a ditch and I'm standing there watching. It's like, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just the whole, the optics of the whole thing to me and everyone else, I think were pretty bad. And furthering learning how to maybe be a good officer in the future. Tell me about stretching the 65 into the industrial complex and what almost happened. I wasn't on very long and I, human memory is an interesting thing. I've been reading a lot about the human memory and how it tricks us. But with that being said, I, so I can't remember exactly when this happened, but it was fairly early on in my career and we had this big industrial fire and there was just a lot going on. And I remember there wasn't a lot of trucks at the scene yet. So my officer was just divvying up a bunch of tasks. And one of the tasks that had to be done, he gave me was pull the 65 into this structure in case, I think it was like an adjoining structure and it was like part of its basement was on fire, but the upper floor wasn't. So he's like, stretch the 65 out. Well, it turns out this industry we were trying to do this was, it was like a metal refinishing. So they would like coat this metal in like this oil stuff. Well, it was all over the floors. So they gave me a 65 fully charged and I had to pull this into this building. Well, like if it's pitch black, I'm trying to pull a 65 on an oily floor and it's fully charged and like use, it's, it's hard enough to pull that in any circumstances by yourself. So I was like, well, I don't want to say no to this. I don't want to, again, you're the rookie. Like who am I? Like, I'm not going to question. So I'm in this, in this building by myself in the pitch black, trying to pull this. And I'm trying to, with my arm, feel things that I can like use as leverage to pull this thing in deeper. And I'm walking backwards at one point really leaning because again, your feet are slipping and stuff. One of my feet went to a hole and my other boot caught like a conveyor belt. Well, I almost fell back. So I guess the way they would treat some of this metal is they would, it would be on conveyor belts and they'd have these big vats of like this oily stuff, a little, I don't think it was like a full level below, but it was, yeah, it was like, whatever. I, I, again, the conveyor would bring it down through the vat. Right. And And just some kind of whatever depth, I don't know, whatever it was, it doesn't matter. But like I almost fell into this hole and the only thing that kept me from falling in was really like my foot got jammed in this conveyor belt kind of thing. And I was able to kind of like basically do like an inverted sit up back up and like grab the belt and like pull myself back up. And even then I was like, well, I got to pull this line. So then you find the line again, you just keep going. Like, but it's funny at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, it's just whatever. It's just, this is what happens. But I look back on it now and I'm like, how could you make a decision? <laughs> Who am I to question anyone? Like, again, I, I don't, there's a part of me where I'm like, how, how would you make that decision to tell someone, a rookie, to pull a charge line into a building with no, like not, anyway. It, a zero viz industry. Yeah, and it was ended up being one of the closer calls. I mean, like who knows what would have happened, but I mean, like you fall into this vat of this stuff. There's a fire that wasn't too far away. 
and I'm in full bunker gear with a bunch of tools and stuff. Like, do I sink like a stone to the bottom? Like, who knows? It's just one of these. But yeah, so it taught me early on. You're like, oh man, like really it's one of those, yeah, learn your surroundings. And at that point too, like later on, as you're starting to write these exams to be an officer, it, it kind of almost like I forgot about the memory almost for a while. And then I, it kind of came back to me and it was kind of like, wow, that's a really crazy, sketchy thing to tell someone to do at that point in their career. So yeah, there's a few of these things where it's like around the hall, there's, I have these like, oh, I've never do that based on experiences that I've had. And that the flip side is I've had a lot of amazing officers too, where I'm like, oh, I love how they do that. Like one of our most respected officers for years was Paul Cuthbert. And I had the pleasure of working with him and Brian Kingshot. And what phenomenal officers they were. Yeah, that's a one-two punch. Oh my, like, wow. The way I got transferred to their hall, as we all know, was a bit of a gong show. Anyway, this is going to be a real long podcast if I go down all these rabbit holes. But so I got transferred to their hall and basically like within three minutes of being there, they're standing up for me because there was some misunderstanding that kind of got me there. And anyway, yeah. And I remember thinking like, man, I've been at this hall for like 10 seconds. These guys are already sticking up for me. And Cuthbert was one of those guys where he'd been on the job 35 years, been a captain for 27 of those 35 years and was the first guy up doing this, that, and the other. And, you know, just like, oh, this is, this is the way it should be. Or like the way I wanted to be as an officer of, you kind of like, hey, you're just part of the crew. That's what I really feel about our job is like, yes, we're a paramilitary organization in terms of how our rank and structure is formed, but that's at a time when there's a purpose for it. I don't need to be someone's parent or look after them or scold them around the hall I'm sure if it's some major thing that's like really disrupting the crew, but at the end of the day, like whatever's happening at the hall is like, I call it adulting, mm. just be an adult. Yeah. But if you also create that dyad, right, that, that relationship as in I'm the parent figure, right? you're going to do what I tell you to do. Then if any part of that firefighter is like falls into the, well, then I'm the child. And then there's a lot of excuses that can be made or that's not my problem. That's not my fault. Like they can fall into that role. Almost like the, uh, the prison guard experiments, right? Where you put aviators and the uniform on some college students, you make some of them prisoners and then they instantly fall into these roles without even knowing it. It's just psychologically, you just, you become the role. So I think that could happen around the hall too, right? If you start treating your firefighters like children, then you're, you can probably expect that they're going to act like children. Where you need to treat them like adults and expect them to act like adults. Well, you want the best out of your crew. You want the best out of everyone. So like, I'm not going to get the best out of crew, out of anyone on the crew by micromanaging them and by giving them all these little rule sets to live by. And like, who am I to, who am I to say what's best half the time? Yeah. I think those are real slippery slopes and it's, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of that idea of like when they interview Marines about like what kind of leader they want. Right. And it's like this, they have this like chart. Have you seen this? Right. The Mm -hmm. four. Yeah. Yeah. So they have an X and Y axis and one of the axes is trust and the other axis is like how hard someone is. Is it performance? Yeah. Like performance or how, like how good someone is at their job. Yes. And so obviously the two in this, the four boxes, like everyone wants the high performer, high trust. No one wants the low performer, no trust. But the interesting thing is they actually took the person who was a lower performer, but they could trust versus the person they couldn't really trust, but was a slightly higher performer, right? And you think, wow, that's an interesting. So, I mean, it's something that like, I think it's so important when you think about like, especially with our job, when essentially we live together for a quarter of the month, building trust with somebody goes down so many paths where who you are around the hall and how you treat people and the type of person you are to another adult. I mean, there's no relationship that I could think of where, and it doesn't matter what this relationship is, whether you're friends, whether you're 
it's someone you're romantically involved with or someone you work with. Like, when does it ever succeed when you put yourself in a higher level and essentially call it parenting or whatever, someone else? Like, it doesn't work. It creates an imbalance in the whole dynamic that just isn't healthy for anyone. We have a paramilitary organization for a reason when shit hits the fan where, yes, there are people who have to make decisions. That's just the way it is because otherwise what happens? Like someone has an opinion, someone else has an opinion. It's like, then we just argue back and forth. It's like someone at some point has to make a decision. So it's practical in a lot of ways, but like there's a lot of times too, where like if we're around the kitchen table and that's a proverbial kind of thing of that idea of things get solved around the kitchen table, right? It doesn't always Or there's no rank around the kitchen table. There shouldn't be. Right. Whereas I think some people try to continue that rank at all times at the fire hall. And that's something I noticed when I was young going like, oh, that's... Because it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't work in any type of relationship. Which is also fear-based because you're worried if you give a bit of slack, then you're not going to be respected. Well, it's that same idea too of like, I think in any role we have, like if you can be humble, if you can be open, if you can be compassionate, if you can be vulnerable, if you can be, if you can show all those things as anybody, whether you're the rookie, the leader, the whatever, it doesn't matter, like our leader or yeah, I mean, it could be like a, like a first class guy or like, it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, those things are... And again, in life, those things are such an asset. Like if I travel around the world, recently having gone to India, like if I would go to India and race this tuk-tuk where if I went to a small town and just acted like a know-it-all, who's going to help you? Right. No one's going to help you. Right. Right. If you go in there and you're kind of like, hey, like I'm new here, like can someone help me do this? Like I don't know where to find this or whatever. It's, it's, it's universal. It's universal how many people will help you and want to help you because again, you just show a bit of humanity and humbleness and vulnerability and... And that's the thing. I think the vulnerability is confused with weakness. And I think that's something our culture is shifting away from. But vulnerability is the opposite. It's like you show yourself. It's like that turtle or that puppy or dog, whatever, shows its belly. That's the ultimate in like, hey, like I trust you, right? I mean, and the same is around the fire hall. Like, like I can say things where it's like, yeah, this might make me sound less tough or less whatever. But, you know. But I literally think, what, it, yeah, what it says is I'm not afraid of you. Right. This is me. I know, but I know you can't. I'm not afraid of you. I either A, trust you, or I trust myself enough or know myself enough. You're not a threat to me. So I can show you my belly. But if you try and bite me. <laughs> right. Oh, exactly. And that's yeah, the, that's the don't make, stand up for. Yeah, the don't mistake my weakness for, um, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's something that I think is a general thing in our fire world. I mean, I, I don't think it's just our department or. Ontario or whatever, I think that's, I think we are getting better at because I think it was a bit of that. And I know we're, sorry, we're getting sidetracked again, but I, I There's know- There's no sidetracking on here. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of that quote unquote old boys club attitude of this is the tough way of doing it. And it's just, it's so- And again, we've recognized the things that we're glad are are fading away. Right. That we're also trying to really hold on to some things that should not go right. away. Yeah. There's a time and place for, we've talked about like having grit and having strength and having, yeah, it's like just suck it up and do it. We need a lot of that. I think that's something we're missing a lot of now. But but know yourself and know that you're coming in that day that you can suck it up and do it. Right. And if you're not, then maybe you shouldn't be in, which is also the self-awareness and the, and the compassion and empathy side of things. But if you are showing up, you're letting everybody know that you're here to play. Or maybe partway through the day, if you find that you're not, then you need to go. And we've had that after certain calls. And we've led by example by recognizing that we're done for the day and we need to go home. Yeah, I think that's tremendously important because, again, like I think that any situation we can't, it's like that idea of like, okay, we've had that bad call for the day. Yes, they're rare, but we have those freak days that you get three or four of those calls. And then how are you on call two, three, four? And some days it might be fine. Right. But some days it's undeniable that 
I think that's been our measure. I think I've messaged that to a few people sometimes. Like, could you run that call again right now? Everyone comes to us like a blank slate. Everyone comes to work with a blank slate. Everyone comes to work ready to do everything. And it's just not true. Right. And that comes from the idea of being a recruit where, yes, they're a blank slate with part of the job. But again, like I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I wouldn't try to find out about that person and really learn about them and see how they see the world and try to experience them and really learn about them. Because I think when it comes down to understanding them, that's part of my job now is, and I think it's part of the entire crew and the entire crew could do this too. But I think it's, it's, it's part of everyone's job at that point to then kind of say like, Hey, like this is the type of person you are. And it's like, I really get to know you. So that when you come in and you're not a hundred percent, I'd be like, Hey man, what's going on? Or it doesn't matter who it is. Like just, if you're not coming into work a hundred percent, like there are times where you're not going to come into work a hundred percent. And I would say in, you've been on the job a lot. Like how many days have you come in 100%? Yeah, not many, but maybe but, not, but closer some right. more you, op- right. closer more often than ninety. And but you can have a conversation to say like, how many days do you show up ninety to ninety nine percent? Right. Well, most days. Yeah. Were the times where I showed up where I shouldn't have shown up? Yes. Hundred <laughs> percent. Right. Exactly. And yeah. I think we've all been there. And I think that's you're right. That is part part of the self awareness is kind of like realizing like okay like oof got lucky there. I got lucky. Yep. Didn't do that. Or again, like that call comes in and you go oh. And I think that's hard too, because I think for some, and I don't blame people, it's like I've said, like I have a hard time recognizing physically sometimes my where I should shut it down, right? Where some people might not realize they can't handle the call until they're at the call. Yeah. But that's where I want to have that relationship with my crew, where if that's you that day, I want you to be able to come up to me and say, hey man, I need a minute. I need to step away from this for a minute. And be like, yeah, no problem. Like we ran a, it was, I was a firefighter. We ran a really bad MVC and... Uh, it was fatality and we kind of blocked off the scene and then we had to go back, whatever it was, four or five hours later and cut her out. Wasn't on the job long. And I remember saying to one of the guys, I was like, it's like, man, I don't want to go back there. Like, I don't want to go back there and cut her out. Like she was a young woman and s- similar to my age at the time. It's funny. Like I look back on that now and I'm like, the crew had such a great, they were just like, you know what? You get the next one. You do this task. Then we'll like, you run the pump, just keep monitor the lines. We'll go do whatever. And the next time it might be one of them. So there's also a way to manage it in the crew where the crew at that point was amazing. Like we were all on about the same amount of time and stuff, but it was, there was no questioning it. There was no, it was like, okay, no problem. Yeah. I got you and you'll have me. I got you and you'll, yeah. And it's reciprocal of course, right? And there's that discussion over the years that still goes on about, do you send a brand new crew that wasn't at the call to go do that part of the call? And it's like, well, we shouldn't overexpose people and other crews. So let's just send the same crew. And man, I don't know. It's not so cut and dry and maybe it's situational and you just have to have conversations with people. The more I learned about any kind of situation or, or relationship I have in life, and like I said, I'm talking about across the board. Because I hate when I use the word relationship, I think people automatically think romantic. But I mean, any relationship, I think, if I've learned one thing, it's over-communication is impossible. Right. <laughs> right? You communicate as much as you can, and that's when you can truly kind of like put people in a place to succeed as well. Right? So you're right. I don't know. It's hard to write these predetermined rules and say, well, if it's an MVC and it's a fatality, then that crew will not go back. We'll get another crew to come in. But what if that crew's Okay. What if the next crew went to that bad call a shift before? Like Exactly. There's no perfect scenario for 100%. Every, right? You could never know that, right? And that's, I think that's the hard part. And I feel for, again, some of our chiefs who have to write these quote unquote rules, because I think it becomes an impossible lose-lose because it's never going to be the same for everything, right? So, 
But maybe it's a thing where we can communicate where it's like, I might say to the crew or you might say to the crew or whatever, like, it doesn't matter who says it, but it was like, Hey, how's everyone doing? Where are we at? Can we go back there? If not, someone makes a phone call, right? I agree. I mean, I almost, I think it would have to be like an as per call, but then the problem with that too, is then you have crews that potentially, or individuals within a crew that might change dynamic. And then if you have like one senior person and then a couple of junior people, then the junior people might not want to go back, but they don't want to come off a certain way to the senior person. So, and that's why we need to set the tone, at least from the very beginning, like you're talking about, like, look, this is how we're operating you can speak up. Well, that's it. And I think that's the balance. And that, that's a hard line, I think, for a lot of newer people to, to navigate as well, because it becomes this idea where at the end of the day, like we have made a lot of advances from that kind of military organization, that, that kind of viewpoint. But there is also when that rookie does speak a lot, there's times where people are like, hey, come on, just slow your roll down a bit here. But on the flip side, we ask them to communicate. So but I think it's also understanding that's where like if you are younger in a crew, it's like learning those nuances of kind of saying like, hey, you know what? Like I need to speak up if, you know, especially to call if you see something, like you should always speak up because who knows, maybe someone didn't see that, whatever, potential collapse or whatever. If you're not okay, there should be someone in the crew you can talk to. It doesn't matter who, or even maybe someone in the department or whatever, right? I think without that, that's when we get to problems. And I think that's true for anything. And I think that's true for these calls too. It's like, it's a hard line to navigate, but yeah, I think it's, because that was one of the things like, I think I had a harder time learning. You want to, I want to talk to people. I want to be, I want to open these lines of communication, but I also don't want to talk too much as that, <laughs> that new person. So yeah, it was, it was something I had to learn, but I think it's like a skill set, And I think it's hard too, because like, I grew up in a family where that was a normal thing to do. We'd sit around the dinner table and we'd hash talk. Things out. We would hash it out. Right. And I've always gravitated towards dating people that it's the same thing. Like I, I want to communicate and, but you could like, this is the thing, like you have to accept people come to us and you don't know what their experience is. Maybe they come from a household where you were chastised or reprimanded for communicating, right. Or for opening your, like, oh, that's not your place or whatever. And like, and that could be something that is just that person's parenting style that they were introduced to. It could be a cultural thing. I mean, we've had that at our crew too, where like there are times where it's like, hey, I need to step back a bit here because I think the way this person's talking or responding or doing something, it might also just be the way they know it to be, right? And that could be something too of like how they respond to a senior firefighter. So it becomes a hard thing where it's like, again, I don't think there's any rules for a rookie either. Because I think we talked about this earlier too, where like at one of my stations, we had Ron Downing, who was our rookie, right? And here you have a, at the time, forgive me, Ron, he's a good buddy of mine. Forgive me if I'm getting your age wrong, but I think at the time Ron was 43. Phenomenal, phenomenal rookie, mm-hmm. right? But I don't want his own business. Right, you're talking about it. a grown-ass man who had this extremely successful business building these gorgeous timber frame homes. The guy's like a artisan with a chainsaw. And it's like, yeah, we're doing chainsaw training. And then like he, but he would sit there and just take the training, right? Where... You're like, buddy, like, and we've learned since now he's like our (laughs) chainsaw guy. So it's, it's a real, but like he, at that time to me, like I should say played the roles. It's not a performance of any kind, but he managed that role. Right. He just, it was, he was so good at that because he just, he was our rookie, but yet he wasn't. I know Chris, like my cousin spoke to that. Chris had a lot of experiences young in his life too, where he grew up pretty young and he became a rookie, quote unquote. It's funny how Chris and I both got into the fire service too, right? Where 
fire was not on anyone's radar. And Chris moved out to BC after traveling around the world with his wife, Liz, for a year, opened his own business up there, started volunteer firefighting. And that led to him going, yeah. wow, this is cool. Right. And sold the business and became a firefighter, right? So it's, yeah, anyway, sorry, a little caveat there, but life's, life's an interesting thing, yeah. So as you're going through your career and you're sort of taking notes on captains, the good and the bad, you're taking notes on yourself and other firefighters, then what gradually leads to you wanting to enter the promotional process and, and how'd that process go for you? What's your take on it then and take on it now? Yeah, it was an interesting kind of journey a bit in a way. It was like when I first got on, I never had an interest of writing. I never thought I'd write. Once I'd been on a while, I thought, oh, you know, it might be interesting one day to just take on a different challenge. But I never wanted to write because I never wanted to not be on the back of the truck. And again, these are my own choices. Don't get me wrong. But having conversations with people that are like, well, if you ever want it, the way our system is structured, if you, the idea of like, there's a lot of young officers, if you ever want it, you got to write as soon as you can. So I kind of fell into that. And the first time I wrote, and again, I... I want to be very respectful to our process and to the people who put in the time and effort they do in our process to do well. So I don't want to disrespect this process at all. However, I found the first time that I wrote, I didn't put everything I had into it. I didn't know I wanted it. I didn't want it. I'd say maybe at 50%, whatever. It's something I thought maybe one day I'd want it, but I just didn't want it then. So I found it really hard to invest myself in something that I wasn't so I was like you know what I'll study and don't get me wrong it's not that I didn't try I'm not sitting here so I think that's something that's used right oh I didn't try and like I I tried I definitely didn't put myself into it but I tried anyway so I wrote that test and the whole kind of process was interesting to me in terms of like how you write this test and then one day I remember driving to work and then they called me you're like oh you're acting today at whatever and you're like what and I remember it was station eight can't remember who was all there that day. I want to say like one of my buddies, Baptiste Andrew was there and, and I was joking with them saying like, Hey, wouldn't it be funny if like we got a fire call, like first thing, I'm not even kidding. Five seconds after it comes out of my mouth, maybe 10 fire call comes in, in our area, we're going to be first in. And all I could think, it was funny. It's like, it, it was very similar to going to the first call when I first got on the job where it was a medical call, we were going to Centennial College or whatever it is on Steeles. Oh, maybe Sheridan, sorry, Sheridan College, sorry. And it was for this medical. And I remember going there being like, I'm not ready to do this. <laughs> like, I, I'm like, am I ready? I don't know. How do I know I'm ready? I like, yeah, I did a few tests, but I don't know if I'm ready. Like, this is crazy. It's funny because you like want it so bad. Like, just right. give me a shot. And I remember having the same thought. You're going down the road, the first night shift. And I'm like, they gave me the job. Yeah. And you're like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> now they're going to know I'm a fraud. Yeah. Um, well, I guess maybe better that than going, hell yeah, they should have me here. Like, I'd, yeah. ra I'd rather have that. Right. Oh my God. And then you're open to learning as opposed to like thinking, yeah, of course I should be here. Right. Right. Yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. And so you had a, this experience. A bit of a humbleness, and it was the same thing with like this. The call turned out to be nothing. Whatever. I can't even remember what it was. False alarm or right. pot on the stove. But it was or, everything on the way. Oh man, it was like, and it's it was int really interesting to me where that was a big like, aha moment where you're trying to run the radio, trying to get your gear on. It's like my brain just froze, right? Where you're trying to think like, what am I? My first ins, like, okay, like if I get half of the list that I should get nailed, what are the five of the ten things that I should get? Right. I, what are the things I have to, and it's like, I was just drawing this blank. And then it's funny when you get there and it's like, it's amazing how things just kind of like happen. Right. It's almost like the first time you pump at a big scene, you're like, oh man, I'm going to forget. And then you end up pumping and like, you realize you just do it. And then you're like, oh, this actually wasn't that bad. 
And I would say it's not difficult. I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting here saying like, yeah, it's like, oh, I've nailed every, like, trust me, like, there's a lot of calls that are challenging and stuff. I'm not. I guess I hope the difference would be that you've been given some pump training as opposed to there was no officer development program. That would be a distinct difference between the two yeah. scenarios for me. It's hard because I really feel like, and what, what motivated me in really wanting to be an officer was dealing with people, was managing people than necessarily like being a quote unquote officer where you would like tell people what to do. That didn't really interest me ever and still doesn't really. But it was more of like managing people where I was like, oh, maybe like I feel like I have a strength there. That's what I want to navigate towards. But it's interesting. It was like the only thing on the exam that they didn't ask or test on. And I get the difficulty in that too of trying to how do you in an environment where you have a union and you have to keep things fair and equitable during an exam process, which I agree with, of course. How do we then tell one of the most important parts of an officer or anyone is is how they're going to fit into the crew and how they're going to navigate those dynamics? We've talked about there's like there's officers that have been great at the job and there's officers that have been great around the hall and there's some that are good at both and you just try to do your best at both or whatever. But I think my experiences when I was younger, there was a lot of them where I shouldn't say a lot of them, but the, the experiences that I remember when I was younger in the department that I was like, I don't want to do this if I was ever an officer. I wouldn't want to treat people that way. I wouldn't want to do that or have those rules. So that was something I always kind of found intriguing with the process of becoming an officer. But were there any things that you thought that you didn't understand why they were being done and maybe you balked at them? And then when you became an officer, you're like, oh, I understand why you were maybe that way. And maybe not in the exact way that you want to do it, but was there anything that was like, oh, I now I understand that other than the officer role, why you may have had that slant? The only thing I would say that comes to mind sometimes is like that kind of the idea of the consequence of it's like, hey, we're out in public and we're joking around doing some stuff. And it's like, people can hear you. It's always something I felt like we should be really cognizant and respectful of. But now it's also that idea of like, like ultimately I'm responsible for the crew. If someone's going to come knocking and also I want to stick up for my crew and I want to be able to stick up for my crew and not feel that I'm not keeping my own moral compass in line, right? So there's been a couple little things. It was It's mainly when I was acting. I find like our crew is very conscientious and is really good that way. But there's times where I felt like I was being put in a position where I can understand now where some officers and experiences that I've had where they're like, I think they realize the responsibility and like the potential weight that that comes with. And not just from a paperwork perspective, but something happens, the public complains, the chief comes in and goes, explain yourself. And you kind of go, I, I want to back whoever this person is, but I want to back them, but it becomes a hard thing to navigate. So maybe a good example of this is how many front porches and front doors have cameras and audio now. Absolutely. So we may be having conversations that have nothing to do with the call, but we're just talking, no one else is around, but really at all times when we're in public, everyone's around. I've even caught myself a couple of times. Like we had a, it was again, when I was acting, we had an alarm call and it was at a big box store and the alarms going off, we arrive, no one's outside. So you walk in the doors and people are shopping and staff are just walking around like, and the alarm is full on going off. You're talking to the manager and kind of being like, well, the, the alarm's going off. Have you guys gone to the area? No, no, we haven't done anything. We haven't done this. We haven't done that. Well, why Why are people shopping? And again, I'm sure it was a moment of like, I, I almost started to get a little agitated where I was like, how do you, as a manager, like you are not looking out for the people in your store. You're not looking for your employees. You're not looking after anyone right now. Like, how are you, maybe my tone changed or they sensed that maybe I was going to get agitated, but they kind of gave me a little bit of an elbow and kind of did like a little head point to... And I look over and there's three people holding their iPhones or, well, I shouldn't say iPhones, whatever, their smartphones. 
and holding it up against their like in front of them, just like filming me. So that happened in the medical call recently where we're there in the bedroom and we were being very professional, very like we were doing a phenomenal job. And I just, I noticed that we were being filmed and the family was great with us, but I guess they, that's what they felt like they needed to do. So maybe we think about it on an MVC, which we've had happen. And you look at the, that around the intersection and for a brief moment, there's a hundred people with phones out, but it could be happening in a living room while you're assessing someone for their heart attack. Yeah. And I think that's really changed. That's something that I think we have to be cognizant of as we, we should always be respectful to the public, but it's hard sometimes when people aren't respectful in return, right? Where... We've all been to those scenes where there is this person who has been involved in a horrible accident. This is the worst time in their life. And this person's more interested in getting a shot of that than giving you the space and time to do your job, right? And that's the time where I think it's all hard for us, where you want to do the best you can for this person. And it's hard not to get frustrated and tell this person to back off, get out of here. Yeah. Whatever. And I think all in all, like we don't have to try very hard to put on a professional face because, right. because we are, 100%. and we're pretty authentic and genuine, right. no matter what situation we are, we are who we are. So we don't have to try to, Oh, I'm, I'm in the public. I better act this way in the back of the hall where it's completely different. Oh, hundred percent. But we are human and you just end up being comfortable and you say something or, and it can be completely misunderstood. So I'm just saying you need, you need to be a bit more switched on and just be conscious of it. When it's hard too, because I think these lenses, like who knows if the night before I came into shift, my kid wasn't sick and I got no sleep and I'm a little more easily irritable because I'm lack of sleeping. How do I know my partner didn't break up with me? How do I know the public doesn't know that either? And this goes both ways too, right? Where like, I always tell people there's members of the public that, and I think this is where like, we have to kind of rein ourselves back, but there's a lot of times where we get flack from public for things. And it's, it's just, look, you don't know this person's story. It's not on you to judge their situation. Or the it's five just, calls we just did beforehand. And like, nobody knows each other's thing, right? It's road rage. It's, it's also easy. I think once you change your mindset, like it was not that I ever had like horrible road rage, but one thing that really, I know has flipped a switch with me is you just never know someone's situation. Like what if they're rushing? I just have the mindset now. I'm like, oh, that person, maybe someone's sick at home and I just let them do their thing. Yeah. And you just don't, because you're not going to teach them a lesson. <laughs> we all, right? I mean, it's, it's just never, and I find the same thing is true in public. If someone's chirping you because you're in the grocery store buying groceries, then just smile and be like, yeah, you know, just explain what we're doing. And if they want to continue on, well, that's their prerogative, you know, and you just respectfully ignore it. <laughs> I had that moment the other day where I, was, I thought I was in, it was a double turn lane, double wide, and we're going to make the turn. So the, the advance goes off and the person in front of me doesn't move. And we had been beat up all night and I'm heading to do live fire all day. And I give them the, eh with the horn and then I realized as we drive I'm like oh yeah even though I've made that corner it was the one from Humber West to Castlemore I made it a thousand times I did it maybe 10 times last night and I just thought I was in the turn lane thought they were looking at their phone gave them the honk and then they went ahead and I pulled them and I'm like damn I was that guy <laughs> <laughs> but that's where we're all human too right and I think that kind of goes back to what we were saying about like who knows how people show up every day and everyone has things in their lives and like we all don't have our best days every day I mean it's just that's the way it is I mean we're human we can't do anything about that but I think if we hold and this is where it's important to me I think where I've I've had officers that are leaning at the window yelling at public and stuff and it's always like this is not right. yeah, the yeah. way to do things right so or the way I want to do things there's a spectrum and we, right. we recognize both extremes of that spectrum right but it's like I think that any time in life we just take a moment to kind of give someone the benefit of the doubt maybe I think a lot of people are overworked overrun it's just people are doing their best and just like you everyone's doing their best and yeah it's 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 tough but in your life, when you've witnessed other people struggle physically and mentally, have you had that experience? How have you navigated that, supported them, learned from it? And then maybe segue for me how you eventually got into peer support. 
I've been lucky where I, I haven't had a lot of struggles myself with depression or but I've been in relationships where I've been with a couple of partners that have, and it's having had those relationships have really opened my eyes to what it means, I think, to to struggle and, and have these these demons. And I think that it was always a thing where I really had a hard time with peer support, whether knowing, like, hey, can I actually do this? Like, if I haven't experienced something, like, can I really be a productive person in a peer support role to help them if I haven't experienced this? And especially from secondhand, I mean... Having been in relationships with a couple of people that had some struggles, but having been involved in that relationship and living with it on a daily basis, you can kind of get a glimpse of what it's like. And I think it really opened my eyes and has made me so much more compassionate on the job and so much more understanding and thinking life about how a lot of these things aren't people's choices. Like we talked about like how people react in certain situations. It's like sometimes people's reaction, like I said, these onions, these layers, and we just don't, we'll never understand their situation. So why not like stop trying? They've had that coping mechanism since they were five. Exactly. And it's not in particular like two people that I've been in these relationships with. And like I also had a friend recently who they have some really shitty hands growing up that are nothing to do with their own and choices they've made. And you think, who am I to judge anyone else's situation if I haven't walked a day in their shoes? And I think it's like having been around these situations with these people, like it's really opened my eyes to what it's like to live sometimes with a, a daily struggle. And I think it could be anything from, could be a physical thing where like I've seen my dad, all these little things people take for granted, like, oh, you like go to work. Well, you walk outside, you get in your car, you drive to work and you whatever. It's like, well, my dad can't drive. So we had lived in the city and we take the TTC, but like, so my dad would get his cane and like walk to the end of the street. And like, people were always like, oh, that's so amazing. It's like, well, it is, but he's also just adapted. Right. So yeah, it's not to say that you can't grow from these experiences and be better for them, but it's also, I've realized that there's times where it's like, just based on that person's experiences, the way they're wired, they have a hard time not getting triggered by something or not getting. So it's made me a lot more patient on the job. I think, especially when we go to calls where someone could be having a panic attack or someone could be where it's like that first, I think, idea sometimes is it's like, oh, we're here for nothing. There's just a panic attack. And yeah, but it's like, it's not nothing to them. I've had them. They're not nothing. They're not faking it. Yeah. Like we're not here. I'm sure they didn't start the day going, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to fake this, call 911 and make a big deal out of this. Like, yes, there are times where I'm sure we've all been there where we feel like, okay, this is a little ridiculous. However, there are a lot of times where one of the first halls we went to, there was, I'm sure you know, there was an elderly lady who I think suffered a lot and would get extreme anxiety. And when we would go to her, it's like just putting oxygen on her would calm her down. Even though she was satting in the proper ranges, there was no need for oxygen, but it was that was her placebo. And then it's like, well, as a service, like, what are we doing here? Like, are we... If I'm going to do the best I can for the public, does it matter if it's placebo? The point is to try to relax her and get her into a calmer state where she can then manage her life. Or at least if we recognize that that's the coping mechanism and then how right. it's being manifested, that then you can communicate it to the proper people that exactly. can then offer other opportunities. Sure, exactly. And that's where I think our job is like, we're really doing our job properly, where we're really advocating for people. And we're really doing our best we can to provide that service to the public. It's interesting, like the physical part of it too, like having experienced the physical struggle of like watching my dad go through some things that were just harder for him. And then like also with the shoulder, it's interesting kind of like that idea of like, and I tried doing this for a while too, is like where I, if I'd live on my own, say I've, like I had the morning off, like blindfold yourself. And then try to make yourself coffee, breakfast, do all these things. And you realize like how many of these little things, like 
when I'm pouring water into the coffee pot, like how do I know how full it is? Like I knew these tricks, like my dad would put his finger in the pot. He would know roughly when the water would touch his finger, like how much water would be in there. Like you learn these hacks or these like, you know, these life tricks or whatever, but, but you realize like how much more kind of goes into it. And then what you realize is there's people that it might not be that visible disability, but it might be something where they have these little hacks that they try to manage their, their emotions that day, or they're, they're trying not to get triggered by certain things. Right. So and I think that I've always had an interest, like I've said before, in people. And I think peer support, what attracted me to that was that interest in people. And and I do fully understand that we're not therapists and it's not about that. So I'm not joining peer support because I think I can talk to someone and change their life or whatever. But I think what's important and what I've really realized in some of these experiences that I've had with friends or some of these relationships is that it's so important to feed kind of like that healthy mind as well as healthy body. And I think that when I was younger, it's like I concentrated, the body was just an easy thing, right? Because it's like you work out, you see results, and it's an easy, tangible thing, whereas the mind is a lot harder. And so, yeah, it just kind of piqued my interest and kind of made me kind of want to go down that peer support route. And it was also like that, like I've always felt strongly about giving back to the department as well. So at that point, like buddy of mine, like Lee Reed and I, we used to do the boot drive for muscular dystrophy where we organized it. We, like to Lee's credit, he was the kind of the one that spearheaded that and got it rolling. And then the two of us kind of started working together to get this, like the boot drive back in order. And we did that for a whole bunch of years and then we kind of passed it off. And then for various reasons, including shifts changing and stuff, it kind of fell by the wayside, but it was, that was something that I did for a few years and then I dabbled in Honor Guard too, which those guys do a phenomenal job. It was maybe not for me, but what an amazing thing that those guys do. And yeah, just trying to find things on the department. And I think it was, goes back to that idea of like, I really feel privileged to have this job. And I think that it was just ways to kind of give back to the department as well. And I think this peer support was a way of, again, learning more about who I work with and being able to help people and just provide them the resources that was, again, who am I to, I'm not going to sit there and be anyone's counselor, but at least provide the resources there, just knowing how important some of these are. And but it's huge value in people just being heard and understood. It is. Absolutely it is. Right. Exactly. And that idea of like people care, like we all care about each other. And and I think that kind of goes to the idea of the culture changing around the fire hall too, where it's like, I really believe strongly in that idea of like people looking out for each other and that idea of, hey, let's let's all support each other and like work towards at the end of the day, like the best thing for our peer support team was to not need a peer support team. Right. If we could change the dynamic, and this is where I feel strongly about this too, is if we can change the dynamic of a lot of the conversations around the fire hall, where they become more vulnerable, where they become, we can increase the level of communication and we understand each other more. Well, I think that then opens the door to crew members being able to go to each other or call a friend at a different hall or whoever. But that's all what it's really about. It's the peer support team at the end of the day. It's just, it's knowing that no matter what the situation is, you have someone you can call confidentially, you can say whatever and talk to that person, or you can just ask them questions about resources and whatever else. I mean, and it, it remains confidential. It's just another tool in the toolbox Then we can have where we do our best for members in terms of providing them with the healthiest kind of environment that they can be in. And that could be at home as well as at the job. Because again, like if I, if someone comes to me with an issue they have at home, like to me, the way I see it is that, well, when they come into work, then they're just better at work. And the two are vice versa. When that person goes home, if they are healthier at work, then when they go home, they have a healthier environment. And why wouldn't I want that for that person where their relationship is more successful or their their kids are happier because they're less grumpy or because whatever. I mean- That idea that you can't say, yeah, I leave work at work because you, we don't say, I leave home at home. 
Exactly, right? We all know that as much as we try, these things filter in. If you do not sleep all night, when you go home, you're not the same person. I'm not saying you yell at your kids, but you're not the same person. Craig and I talked about that after that shift and there was a lot going on. He's like, I was not a good husband in the afternoon. I was grumpy. I was short. Like he was talking about it and verbally opened up like, listen, this is my experience. And with the rookie around, like we just had the conversation. And that's where, again, like the communication then, and this is where we start to change. Mandy was so, and you were so instrumental in, in bringing this forward to our recruits and making this part of our recruit training. And now we're also bringing families where we have a family night too, where we do kind of a Q&A with families where we say, hey, look, understand the flip side of this. This goes two ways where the firefighter now has to recognize how the job affects them. But as a family, we also have to understand what it means to do this job. And when they come home from a shift, you know, as a partner, as a kid, as a parent, as a whatever, these, all these dynamics change. You're right. Like we are going to be shitty people, but again, a partner that potentially understands and is willing to put the time into communicating. If you come home and if you just yell at them and go to bed, well, that might be on you as well for not communicating. But if you kind of say like, I was really beaten up, I'm tired. I'd really like to have this conversation with you right now, but could we have it in two hours after I have a nap? And does that happen once, twice, every day, months, years, right? There's parts of that. Absolutely. And what about that idea that instead of saying toughen up, harden up, what we're also then able to do is through these conversations, teach people how to become more resilient, right? Because that's really when you're saying harden up, toughen up, you're saying become more resilient. And we do need to become more resilient, but just telling someone be more resilient and expect them to just figure it out, that's not helpful. Well, it's like someone who's never gone to the gym and you just go, just go work out. Yeah, get stronger. Go work out. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yes, get tougher, harden up. Here's how and model it and know that it's a journey. So instead of just saying, do this overnight, become this, or you suck and you don't deserve to be here. Those are two very different things. Absolutely. And I think that one thing we have to realize is that as much time as we spend as firefighters training our bodies, we have to train our minds. We have to become better at our mind coping with this. Now, what that means for every person is different. There are a lot of things that people can do, like as you said, to become and again, like I think that it, you're right to say that word stronger and more resilient. I think it's really important to verbalize that doesn't also mean just because getting stronger doesn't mean you're weak. It's like it doesn't mean that you're starting from a place where you're below or weak or whatever. It just means that like if you go to the gym and you can squat 500 pounds, you might still have the goal of squatting 600 pounds. You're extremely strong, but you want to be stronger. So why cap that? If you have someone that you're like, hey, I'm coping really well, why not keep training that? keep training those skills. And so I think we all learn what works best for us. Like I've always learned that sleep is crucial for me. So I've become, again, especially wearing these straps, like understanding how sleep affects me and my body and stuff and my ability to do my job, my ability to work out, my ability to communicate properly, my ability for my brain to function. I, especially with the background of concussions, I find fatigue really, like even now I find that because I haven't been sleeping that well the last few nights because I like, I feel like right now too, it's like you're searching for words and stuff. So as we learn to become more resilient from this, like what I've learned is like, so sleep becomes important. I will navigate how I come home. And for example, how, when I walk my dog, how I manage the things around sleeping. So I'm okay, like, okay, I want two hours of sleep sometime before lunch. And then I learn how to navigate. This just becomes like a habit. Based and, on yesterday, what does today look like? Right. And if I'm in a healthy relationship, that's been communicated and that then my girlfriend or my partner, whoever you're with or whatever would understand that, or you hope would understand that. And then, then it also becomes, well, then if I've had a bad call, then how do we become resilient about that? And it's, again, for me personally, getting on that bike 
and suffering is part of what I find keeps me... It's an anchor. Yeah, it is, right? It's like that almost idea of like, they say like the best dog... Tra- <laughs> I'm going to comp- compare myself to a dog here, but the best dog training is when you you go sprint a dog or like let the dog run around for an hour, get them tired, then train them. So it's like that idea too of like, I don't know, maybe there's a part in me that there's there's a little energizer bunny that I need to drain that and it allows me to kind of reset. And I, I've been lucky. And again, don't get me wrong, because I, especially being involved in peer support, I'm not trying to say that these things don't rear their ugly head when we least expect them. It's just to this point, I haven't, I haven't struggled with calls at work or whatever, but I do appreciate because I've seen people at work that are great firefighters that do their job extremely well and then say like, Hey, I've been on this job for, doesn't matter, five years, 10 years, 25 years. And I went to that one call and that affected me. There's a senior firefighter that I respect a lot that had that happen. He had said, he's, he's like, I never thought it was going to be me. I also realized that could be me as well. I've been on the job, whatever it is, 15 years now, and I've been lucky. Touch wood. But that's not to say tomorrow, the next day, a month later, a year later, 10 years. I don't know. And what I thought of when you said you could get to the gym and be able to squat 500 and you're going to want to, you can still want to get stronger or get shown that you can and it would be beneficial if you do. And then there's also the other side of realizing that even when you squat 600, there's an opportunity that you could still need help. 100%. You could still get knocked down. Like it's, You're not going to reach a point like, I'm good now. I'm at a mental resilience state now where I'm good. Nothing will ever bother me. Right. Right. You're right. Because you can be in a really happy, good place and who knows what rocks your world. It could be a million things. But thank God you were in the best state you could be when it happened. Yeah. If you get an injury like you, right, you were physically fit. So you were able to bounce back. But if you weren't physically fit and had the same injury, what was that path back like? Well, it's interesting too, because I think we kind of got sidetracked, but you asked me too, like how that messed with me in terms of my identity. Physically, it was the easier part of the physical side to that is that you hurt yourself, you go get surgery, they do some imaging, you tell you what you need. I don't remember. I got knocked out and I woke up with a new shoulder, (laughs) right? You can see the imbalance in your body, you balance it back out, you're good again. And other people can see it too. Right. The harder part is that, that mental side of that, right? Where it's like, how do you then balance these things? And it's like, I think that in this journey and like that, like we've talked about too, of like me discovering for myself, like how to listen to my body and that goes to everything. So like now that I've really locked my sleep into more consistent patterns and a lot of that's based on the strap and kind of going like, oh, wow, I didn't realize my sleep was this variable based on me having a few beers before I go to bed or stress or whatever. So I've really dialed my sleep in and then I've like, oh wow, like I feel more rested. I feel more able to take on everything every day. And then it's, I ate this thing and I don't feel good the next day. Well, what did I eat? So I think it's, it's on one of those, it's one of those things too, the struggle that I've had is like having that realization of self of- of Pay attention. Exactly, pay more attention, which is what I'm learning to do. But I think that's a big thing for a lot of people is like, how do I become more resilient? Well, like pay attention to when you had a, bad call and you handle it well. Well, what did you do? Or if you had a bad call and it bothered you or something happened and you thought about it for a while, then, well, what did you do or what didn't you do? Or was it just the call or, right? Or someone else has a bad call. You watch them handle it well. What did they do? Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. So exactly. It's like anything, any relationship in life where like, yeah, you'd have someone, you watch them get triggered and you're like, oh, wow, what happened there that caused that? So to your point, to become more resilient, to become more adaptable to these things, I think it becomes... If we treat it like we would our bodies, we train these things, we listen to ourselves. And then we can also like, we all have those people, or we hope we all have those people in our lives that really know us. Like I kind of snapped on that recruit or whatever. And I might come to you and say like, Hey man, like, have you noticed that I've been off lately? Or 
sometimes it's easier for people in our lives to see things too that we might not even be aware of. So again, that's where communication, I hate to like, it's such a cliche and such a broken record, but it, if you communicate these things and it's like the people in your life can then help you see these things better too, right? So that's the real kind of ownership of this whole thing too, is if you have something come up, then like, what have you done? Because it might come up. And then it's like, well, what have you done to try to help yourself through this too? Because I think that's always the first step. Something can't happen in your life and you just throw your arms up in the air and go, okay, well, I expect everyone to help me or expect the peer support team to read my mind. And that happens sometimes too. And it's like, we always try to tell people, it's like, there's no written rule for one thing that will help everyone with every single situation. So I'm like, look, I will do everything I can for every person. Just let me know what you need. I'll do my best to be there. Like I really will. Or but find I can't. you who can help you. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly it. Because I, again, I'm not going to have that ego to sit here and say like, I can help everyone. I can't. I'm not trained to, and I would never want to do that. I've said that to a lot of people where I'm like, I will do my best to make sure you get what you need because I can keep that promise. So we're talking, I think, around this topic uh, uh, quite a bit and, and the factors that are a part of it. But maybe specifically, maybe we can give it this comparison and use titles for it that people recognize. So talk to me about the difference between what you see as bro culture and what brotherhood is or the family of the fire service. Again, those are gender-specific titles, Baroness and Brotherhood, but people now three hours in understand where we're at and just talk to me about the difference between those mentalities, those cultures. That's what I'm trying to drive at, regardless of what we title them. There's almost like nothing could be more different from one than the other. I mean, it's a 180 parallel. I think Baroness to me, is kind of like that unhealthy locker room culture almost of immaturity where people aren't themselves. It's this idea of like, posturing, whatever you want to call it, of, and ultimately kind of the bro robs people of the genuineness that exists between us. And if we really want to be better at our job, if we want to be better people, if we want to be, and this is where I think it's like, it's not only just becoming better at work, it's just becoming better in life. And then I think once we become better in life, we become inevitably better at work. So I think the two are symbiotic. They go, I think if you're talking about family, I mean, to me, it's like, well, what would you need to have a healthy family dynamic? You need acceptance, you need compassion, you need vulnerability, you need communication, you need love, you need understanding. Accountability, yeah, right. tough love. Right, yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's people screaming into their radio right now listening to this potentially saying like, oh, you didn't include this, but it's whatever family means to you, right? Whatever way you or terms you want to use to describe the important things. And that family could be the best friend, it could be anything, but it's like, you know, what are those important relationships in your life and what are the core values that hold that, like the foundation of that building up. What do you need and what can you bring? Right. And I see Bronus is almost like the opposite of that. Like there's no structure, there's no foundation, there's no deeper. It's just like this posturing kind of like potentially toxic. I mean, it doesn't always have to be. I mean, you could describe Bronus as like, oh, we're like ribbing each other and we're, we're having fun and we tease each other, which sure, you could describe it that way. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a time and place at the fire hall for that. I think that is a healthy dynamic of that kind of teasing and we can do that in a respectful way, right? Well, there's a difference between me getting that from you and me getting that from someone who I feel like I've never met the real person. Exactly. And that's the thing I think where, oh man, it reminds me of uh, a situation around the kitchen table once, literally around the kitchen table. So in my travels around the world, I've been to Korea twice, South Korea, obviously twice. Amazing country. I mean, there's a reason why I went there twice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's really cool. And there was a reason why I went there twice. It brought something brought me back there. But, but one of my good friends in the fire department being of Korean background, we'd always, there's these little like, 
every culture has these, like Canada says A and a boot and all these. There's just little things that having spent a lot of time in Korea, like I've picked up on. And we would kind of have these little back and forth. And there's a very distinct kind of way sometimes. There's a uh, dialect. There's a... Yeah. Like a, and it kind of like this couple words they use on the phone, like on the cell phone that just... They're not from Alabama. They're right. not from Australia. Right. It's pretty obvious. Exactly. Right. So there's just these little nuances of culture that sure. I've, and this is what I love about traveling and culture and food and all this stuff is learning these nuances. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so anyway, so like being a good friend of mine, we would kind of like laugh about some of these nuances and kind of joke back and forth. And then someone who my buddy did not like made a reference to this guy's culture. It really just shut everything down because at that moment, the guy was like, you don't know me. You don't know my cult. Like there is a time and place for these things. There's a safety. There's a comfort. There's a, there's a knowing. Because it's, again, we've set up the foundation with my friend being Korean. We had trust. He had respect. He knows I respect him. He knows I respect his culture. He knows I respect everything about him. Like, I love him. Sure. And, and I listen to him. And if he would ever say to me, like, Dave, it's like, just shut up, man. I'd be like, yeah. okay, I won't. You cross the line. Yeah, I'd be like, I get it. And it'd be mental note, my bad. I'll never bring it up again. But it was just one of those. And again, if someone like listening to us, they probably wouldn't understand what we'd be joking about. But it really, at that moment, made me realize too. It's like, oh, around the hall here, it's like, because he was starting with this this other guy making a comment where it was the exact opposite, where not only did he not, not know the person, we didn't really like them. And the person <laughs> said something. To know your audience. And it really backfired, right? But it's But that's where it's like, Exactly. Know your audience and know kind of, if we're going to talk about family, it's like, we can't, we could can say, oh, the fire family, but are you really doing what you can around that proverbial kitchen table to foster that? Are you listening to people? Are you allowing for space? Are you allowing for compassion? Are you allowing for difference? Are you allowing for people to be who they are? Because I think those are the moments where you really get blessed by these great experiences of learning about people and who they are. And then again, makes you better as a crew, makes you stronger as a crew. Because then again, you know who the person is, you know where they're coming from. And that's the family. And for me, it would be in that situation, really like we just met or we've met only a handful of times and and that's where you're going to go. Like that's the way you want to start getting to know me by that comment. There's a lot of communication that should happen ahead of that. And then there's room for it but not out of the gate. I think if I saw something like that happen with you and it was at our hall, it might also be a reminder to you from me to be like, hey, you don't know where that person's coming from. Because again, culturally or in their family dynamic, that's their way of showing, I want to be friends with you. I want to be closer to you. It's like that. And again, I can't remember what the exact comment was, but maybe this was the guy's way of trying to become buddies with my friend in that situation where it just backfired. (laughs) But we've also witnessed within our crew on scene of someone from another emergency service be blatantly racist yeah, to one was, of our crew members. So, well, it wasn't, initially wasn't to one of our crew members. Okay. It was to someone. Oh, it was to a person of, of the public we were helping. It was a member of the public who was involved yes. at the accident, yes. right? So imitating the way they spoke. And someone on our crew who was of the same culture had yes. a huge problem with that. And yes. rightly, rightly so. so. Yeah. Exactly. Where... <laughs> It takes a lot for me to get bent out of shape. Don't get me wrong. I have my times where I want to stand up for people, but... We all got pretty upset. And that was a situation where I'm like, okay, this has to be dealt with. It's not just a comment that could be in passing or maybe it's like that individual might just have taken it wrong. It didn't happen more than once. It was like something was said and it was done again. Exactly. At that same scene. Though. Yes. Sorry. Like, yeah, not yes. not v- multiple times at that same scene. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. 
And the hard part too is that so you, you stick up for your crew, you follow up with stuff, the things are said. So following up with the other agency kind of saying like, hey, like this is what happened. Something needs to be done here. And then you don't hear for months. And then you hear, well, they were disciplined. I'm not saying it's a fireable offense or maybe it is, but, and that's not on me to decide, but well, what was the discipline? Like, was there really, or are you just telling me that because you don't want me to say anything? Like, but again, like, I think what the important lesson that came from this as a crew is that this member knew, again, we talk about family. So in a bro culture, it might just be like, oh man, whatever, you're just being weak. You're just, forget about it. What's your problem? Or you'd laugh about what the right, person exactly, said. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. Whereas yeah. the family aspect of that is the exact, the brotherhood, again, familyhood or whatever you want to call it, sisterhood, it doesn't matter who the member is. The flip side to that is knowing that because that happened, that member might be like, hey, you know what? Like I can trust my crew now. Because they won't tolerate it. They won't tolerate it. And they're going to have means I don't have to tolerate it. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what that time spoke to is like, look, man, yeah, you could be newer on the crew or newer on the department, but it doesn't matter. Like that's just a no go. Like you do not, and I'll stand up for, I don't care who the person is all day long. Like that's just, there's no, there's no place to that. So I think like broness to me almost becomes that like toxicity where it's almost in culture, where it's not just around the fire service, because it is, our culture is changing quite a bit. Our culture is becoming more way more accepting, understanding. And I think that's an important lesson for a lot of people who I think aren't on the job, always want to kind of go to that quick, oh, you guys are just the brotherhood and you guys don't accept. No, no, no. I would say it's almost the opposite. Like we're a fairly young department, but there is a lot of crews where like, I couldn't care less how you identify what you, like if you are trying hard and you're good at your job, I don't care. And none of our crew would care. And there's a lot of crews where no one would care. And I'll bet you what you'd find now is the odd person that does say something, they're going to be the ones that are shut down quicker. It, it, that would be that everyone should be like, dude, what, shut up, man. Which like, I think we've done with mental health too. Right, exactly. Again, we're not going to eliminate racism, ageism, sexism, all the isms, but right. we can own the house. Right. And I think we're starting to own the house. That's the unfortunate thing is like, I think there's a lot of, and we're still, the thing with mental health is there's a lot of stigma with it still. And I think the more we normalize it and the more we talk about it around the fire hall, the more it becomes just an everyday thing that then we can then help each other with. Because like I said, the best thing for a peer support team is to get itself out of a job, right? Where if we, if that culture then becomes that family where that person kind of goes like, Hey, you know what? Like, yeah, I can come to my fire family with anything. Then it just, there isn't a downside to that where it doesn't strengthen work around the fire hall, work at a scene, home life. And it just, that's the importance for me about peer support. Why I think I feel so strongly about this is I really just feel that it's one of these like snowballs you roll down the hill that just keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's like, why won't we do the best for each other in all those situations? Why can't the whole department be a peer support team? Right. And I think that's the difference within between family and bro is the family wants to hear. And again, it's not about just like, oh, people complain, it becomes a bleeding heart kind of situation. It's not about that. And I could show tough love to somebody in a crew and kind of say like, hey, the best thing for yourself would be to become more resilient with this. And that, that would be a conversation that's had. It's not slighting that person either. It's just saying like, hey, I care for you enough to, this is what I, anyway, this is how I I understand who you are. I understand what you went through. I understand where you're at right now. Right. Let's help you through that. Right. And then let's teach you also how to not be in the situation again or to be able to manage it better the next time. And I think a lot of times where these things are said, I think a lot of it comes from insecurity. And I remember one of the first times we were leaving the hall, I was fairly new and I was with three senior, a senior captain, two senior guys. And there was 
an elderly man passing in front of us and walking. And again, we're going to get groceries or something or fuel or whatever, the, whatever it was, no emergency. And it's an elderly man in his eighties, probably like walking, but maybe not as fast as <laughs> the first thing that came out of their mouth was a racist comment. And then at the time, my girlfriend was half the same culture as this gentleman. Right. It was the first time I said something. I called them on their comment. And here I am, like I've been on the job maybe a year. I did it in a respectful way, but I kind of said, hey, like guys, like I'm basically, it's not cool. Like I'm not. It's funny that we have to caveat that we did it in a respectful way when they weren't being respectful. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's why, also why like, is that? I don't think we're, again, because I think the bro culture just be like, becomes then a battle. Sure. Where I think that's how you, and again, I hate to use the word win, but I think that's how you. Oh no, I completely agree on where that. Where you're like, it, hey yeah. man, I'm not going to stoop to your level, but what you just said right now is bullshit and I'm not going to sure. be part of that. It was really interesting though, even at that moment where being that junior guy, how all of a sudden they're just like, oh, we can't say this around him. And it just stopped. If they say it behind my back or whatever, it's like, I can't control that. But learn this lesson. Like you can't just say whatever you want around everyone. It just doesn't work that way. So anyway, sorry, long-winded answer, but I think that all kind of like, just it's like, let's build this foundation of, of these core things that make any relationship strong. And I think that's the thing is like, it's not that there's some secret sauce to the fire department. It's like, we're all people. If you just like if you think about how any person in life wants to be treated or how you want to be treated, all we have to do is reciprocate that, right? And it's not that hard. Like that's the mind-blowing thing where at times I'm like, if we have like, we have to sit through like a four-hour course that the city runs on, how is this a course? Like, isn't this just being a respectful adult? Great segue. And let's, let's finish off on this one. You mentioned having to sit on a course for four hours. It doesn't matter what the course is. Well, I guess it, I guess it would matter what the course is. So my, my question would be, how do you feel about the change in the fire service or maybe specific departments are going there sooner than others where they're becoming more corporate and less about what we're talking about family, the corporatization of the fire service. And I know some departments are getting there. Probably the, the larger urban centers probably are faster than others. There's obviously going to be positives to that. So again, we don't need to demonize corporatization uh, fully. But I guess what we're talking about here is, I guess I've asked it in a different way before, about what traditions do you think we should hold on to? Which ones should we get rid of? And we've touched on a few of those along the way. But given the specific question, like how do you see that maybe being detrimental to the service? We've talked about a lot of the positives that can come with that, with more awareness, safer workplaces, and what a safe workplace means versus the core of the fire service and what we need to hold on to for dear life or we're going to lose all of it. So I would start off by saying that you're right. I think it's easy to demonize that idea of corporatization because I think that's what's demanded a lot of the time from a budgetary perspective on a lot of apartments where it's people's taxpayers' money that's going in and we have to answer to how that money's spent and how it's allocated and rightly so. I think in some ways, having that outside influence of understanding running something like a fire department as a business could be a positive, where I think we can streamline certain things that we do. And I think we could become more efficient with certain things. And maybe some corporatization would lead to those efficiencies. I think the danger to that is almost what I saw in the academic world, which was a lot of these universities now are being run by, they always used to be run by the dean was always like a, an ex-professor that was typically voted in as being somebody who was seen as having been a professor, having understood what the needs are of the staff and of the students, 
and what would make a better environment for learning to happen and make a better educational facility and also handling the flip side, which was the business side of it. And unfortunately, I think, in, and I should say unfortunately, but in some unfortunate ways, the academic world has gone towards this business side where a lot of these big businesses now are, are being run as businesses. And I think it, it takes away from that experience as a student, especially like some of the bigger schools that I think you kind of become a number. And then it becomes people making decisions if you're running the university now that weren't professors and haven't been a student in university for decades, potentially. So their experience that they remember might not be anything near relevant of what a modern experience or current experience is as a student. So anyway, so I'm, I'm using this academic things just because I know it's, it's something that I started to see happening when I left that kind of academic world way back in the day. And I think as a fire service, we just have to be very careful that if we have people that are in charge that are making decisions, they can bring a lot of value in terms of budgetary and an economic value or seeing things in a way that maybe, again, from being outside of the service would be a tremendous asset of seeing things without that lens of, or that bias of, of being a firefighter. Fresh eyes like you and the magnet experience and the, 100%, the pipes. 100%. Right. Yeah. It's just exactly some different experience, some new, and we see that with recruits too. Like we might have a problem where like, Hey, this is how we, whatever, how we fight fires in terms of like high rise, how we unload this. And then some rookie comes in and goes, well, okay, I have a background in whatever. And I noticed that we did this as nothing, not applicable. Could we try it? And it works better. And you're like, oh, so everyone has something to bring to the table. But I think what we risk at this point is then people making a decision who have never been a firefighter or don't understand or can't listen to the people when they go to those people and say like, hey, what do you need or what's best for you? And then I think that what the slippery slope then becomes is that it's being run as a business. And then it's like, where does it start and stop? Like, are they ordering fire trucks now because they're, they're cheaper, they're better this or gear is it's like, yeah, you're saving somebody on gear, but the gear then has certain hindrances. Like, so well, we've seen trucks been bought off showroom floors that aren't necessarily optimal in their functionality. Let's put it that way. Right. And then I think the flip side is like, when you look at some of these really big cities like Toronto, I know struggles. Because again, from a budget perspective, they're not replacing two, three trucks on a department every year or whatever. They're replacing, they have to replace 20, right? And so it does change things quite a bit. So I'm like, who am I to speak to? I mean, these are subjects that are way above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, but, and I think I'll, maybe I'll add to to give you some more to work with and, and give thought is that we're not, again, not demonizing the, even the corporate end because we know on the firefighter end of things, we don't always do ourselves any favors. And that... I think I've, I was speaking to it yesterday that the only way that you can hold an administration accountable or a union accountable is if you are doing your optimal. Absolutely. And the only way the administration can hold either of those other parties accountable is if they're doing their optimal. So if you're careful, right, when we're saying, well, you should be doing this, this, and this, and it's like, well, look at the way you're behaving. That's a negative spiral. So. Again, that speaks to relationships, what I think you've touched on as maybe the arc through our, through our discussion here. Well, I think that, and again, like I, I feel like all I do is say communication is the key to everything. But I mean, the same would be true in an environment like that, where like at that point, whoever's making these decisions, are they willing to hear what we have to hear? And this happens with everything, whether it's writing a promotional exam. Are you actually going to just keep writing a promotional exam or, or 
you know, what about an office development program where people are asking for it? And then would you then just write the program or would you go to people that are, have recently just gone through the program or who are currently in the program or who are thinking of entering the program and maybe find out why they're not because there isn't that development program or because they're, at the end of the day, if we're not working as a team and if we're not working together to make these decisions, you could have someone who was a firefighter be the worst at making these decisions because they think they know the answers to everything and they're not willing to hear anything. And you might have someone come in from another walk of life whose background is in whatever business and they might come in and go, hey, you know what? I don't know this stuff. Let me learn about what you guys need. And then we could work together to kind of form these. So like, I don't know. I think that there's there's inherent real risk to losing certain fundamental things that are important to the fire service. And I think that we have traditions that I think were the bronus, <laughs> that we're, we're becoming so much of a better department losing those things. But yet there are certain traditions that I think we need to keep. And part of that, this ranking structure is there for a reason. I'd hate to think that someone also comes in and make decisions and says like, well, hey, you know what? You're all adults. You're all equal. And yeah, we are. 100% we're all equal. But there still is because it's important for people to go through and, and have to show themselves in certain tasks or certain ways or certain abilities that when we go through that with them as a crew tells us about them, right? It's not as simple as just kind of saying like, hey, you know what, like this is, we're going to hire people in a certain way, which has been a bone of contention and something we've talked about too, is like how those feelers are put out for when they advertise in terms of what they want as a recruit. It's more about the perks and not about the work. I think that just kind of sums it up. And not even the perks in like a healthy way. It's like the perks of like, now we're bordering on reinforcing what I think are some beliefs in our culture about our job that aren't true. (laughs) This job is about me and should adapt to me. Right. And it's about how many days off a month you have and about, and it's like, man, (laughs) that's how you want to play this to, and then we wonder why at this point we get people that don't want to work hard because that's what you're advertising. (laughs) So then it's like, who's creating that? So like, this is where there's a fundamental gap in some people who are making decisions and then some people who are, as a crew, we're the ones that are encountering this. And yet there's no communication between, like, I wouldn't even know who to call. I mean, I could call one of our chiefs and we have a lot of great chiefs that would take a call and would would listen to it, but I'm not even sure they can, at times, can filter through this because I think now we're dealing with departments within the city that have nothing to do with us. And it's like, I always go back to this idea. It's like, if you come to me, Scott, and say, hey, I want to learn how to ride a bike. If I'm truly going to teach you how to ride a bike, shouldn't I know how to ride a bike? I might be able to point to you the best teacher and I might want to provide that, but I have to understand what you do and how you do it and the effects it has on you and what would best make a firefighter. But it doesn't seem like we're interested in that. It seems like we're interested in saying like, okay, well, my job says I have to advertise this job in a certain way. And regardless of what the recruit we get, that's not important. It's just, I'm covering my base on like, this is how I work going to advertise this. And it just... That's where I think we're starting to get, see these cracks in this. We have that idea of like, of the fire culture versus the, the corporate culture, right? And, and these cracks are potentially going to get to the point where I also don't believe like back in the day where the nepotism was the answer either, where, hey, this is Uncle Bob's or Aunt Susie's nephew, niece, whatever, and they should get the job because that's who they are. And we've also seen the old school firefighters that were firefighters and captains, maybe DCs, and they and then they just keep getting promoted up way above where they should be right. just because they were the senior members and they were awful administrators. To go back to some of what you were saying too about like what made you want to write to be an officer. And some of these things are, 
It's exactly that. It's like you see some of these things and you kind of go, well, if someone's a good firefighter, it doesn't mean they're a good captain. And if someone's a good captain, it doesn't mean they'll be a good DC. But on the flip side, you might have someone that's a very good firefighter and is a very good DC or PC. Or they could struggle at a few ranks, but they've been an amazing PC because they just have those skill sets. And I think we see that all the time. And it's just, it's hard because I don't think, you can include me in this too, and I think we'd all have a bit of this weakness, but it's, I think at times we aren't always the people we think we are. We aren't always going to be that person where we are, think we're going to thrive. It's like, hey, I've navigated being a firefighter really well. Well, all then it's like, I've been on the job X amount of years. Well, now they say I can write the exam. So I'm just going to write the exam. We really need to, at each one of these kind of moments, is look back and kind of say, okay, well, what does this job entail? If I'm not good with people and if I can't navigate those lines of saying like, hey, you could come into work and part of your job, if you're going to choose to write that exam, is you're navigating personalities. And you have to be open and willing to understand and accept everyone for who they are and just everyone sees things differently, walks in these shoes differently. And if you can't do that, the problem with the fire service then in the military structure we have is that if you would be a good PC and you're a firefighter, well, the only way to become that PC is typically, and I know there's a couple of exceptions, is to become a captain, then become a DC, a district, and then kind of move up. So it's hard because we've seen that too, where like one of my best district chiefs, I remember, and like I only knew him as a district chief, was a captain that was a very unliked captain, but it blew my mind because I'm like, this is one of the best DCs I've ever had. And that's the hard part to this too, is like at times, I think the the structure then creates kind of like a, a situation where it's forced people into certain roles, even if the end result is, hey, I want to be a PC, but I still got to be a DC or a captain for a while, even though I might not succeed at those roles. But you're right. I think there also that is that firefighter that thinks, well, I just, I'd be good at the next role. Well, maybe you wouldn't. And you haven't spent enough time in the previous one, if that's what you particularly need to elevate. So I guess what we're saying is it doesn't, it's not just applying to brand new rookies and recruits as in saying, just because you want this job doesn't mean you should have it because you're not suited for it. It's also as you move up, just because you want the captain role doesn't mean you're suited for it. Just because you want the DC role doesn't mean you're suited for it and up and up and up. So it, it's not a thing that just lays on a candidate. It's something that's an arc that runs through all of it, right? Well, I think that's where there are the people that decide to, to be a first-class firefighter. And I think that's one of the most valuable, we've talked about this, one of the most valuable positions that any crew can have is that good senior firefighter. Do we fall into that trap then of like wanting these things that don't necessarily aren't the best for us, but we just think that we want these for whatever reason. And maybe that person's made a choice based on the system that they don't want to play the game. Right. So you have people that are capable of doing these roles that maybe just choose not to do it because they don't agree with the system. Yep. I absolutely think that's true too. And like that, that then again is just an avenue where it's like, why can we not have some of these people? And like, again, some of those people would just complain to complain. But there's a lot of people on, on our fire department and a fire department who are very smart individuals. It doesn't matter what their background is, that if you just listen to what they say, it could bring a lot to the table and would help kind of navigate some of these problems that we're having. And I think like that's kind of the the unfortunate thing right now. And I think that we have a couple of chiefs right now that I think are trying to listen and bridge those gaps and which is so great to hear. But then it's hard because just like everything in life, then and rightly so, they they want to move on and be something different and they move on to a different job and then someone else gets promoted. And as we said, at the highest level of incompetence and, uh, and, but that's just life too. And I think we can sit here and complain about that, but that's, 
this is also one of the reasons why I wrote, because for me, it was like, if I want to be a positive in this, in this environment, if I want to be a positive in this chain somehow, it's like, where can I be the best that I can be? And I think it was important for me to, to write to then say like, Hey, you know what? I do feel like my strength is managing people. And I also think that we need officers that are willing to back up their crews and are, are not in this for an ulterior motive. And I'm not saying that like, obviously I'm the only, there's like so many good officers. I'm not like, again, I'm not. But there are the ones you're mentioning. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's like, it's hard, right? I mean, like what job, what aspect of life, what, you know, are, are there not people promoted that shouldn't be? I mean, I would say like name one job where it doesn't happen. People running countries who shouldn't run on anything. They shouldn't be in charge of anybody and they're running countries. Here we are. And I'm not talking about Canada specifically. I mean, it happens everywhere. It's just, is there anything you want to end on? You'd want to pass on? Do you want to recommend? It could be to anybody. It could be to candidates. It could be to rookies, people that want to promote firefighters currently in the job. Maybe they're struggling and frustrated. Is there something that you want to end on? Something that resonates with you, I think, or you carry through. We mentioned a lot of it today, obviously, but is yeah, there something I, I don't want to miss anything? So no, I appreciate that. And I think for me, it'd be like just echoing. And again, like I, I don't think I'd say anything new here besides echoing a lot of the way we really do each other service is to be that family and to be that family is just like we would any person on the job. Like it blows my mind at times how harsh some people are to each other around the fire hall where we're willing to show that compassion to the public. And yet we're not willing to give an ounce of that or an inch of that to someone at work at times where yes, there are people that take advantage of situations that are frustrating to work with at times, but I think the more that we just try to understand that at times everyone's doing their best and people are doing their best, then the only thing you can do then is like be your best. Really try to advocate yourself as a person who is compassionate, is vulnerable, is open and willing to accept, learn, listen. And we all do it. Like we've said before too, it's not about what rank you are, what years you have on, what we have a lot of brand new people come on. And that's one thing I really think that healthy crew does is they just, they're, yes, there's a time and place, but there's also that ability to just be completely open and accepting. And I would rather look at it as like the idea of we accept everything and let that person then unearn that trust in a way. And don't get me wrong. It's not like you sit here and like give automatic trust right off the bat, but there has to be, I think, just a general kind of like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to work with you. Because like, when we get someone new, they're at that hall. In five minutes, you're running a call with them. So like, there will be a level of trust that I will give. And it won't be 100%, but it also won't be zero. It's not like you have to start from zero with me. But Well, I mean, Jordan said that episode one, right? You get 100% of my respect from the moment I meet you. And you can only lose it from there. Right. Well, it's interesting, too. I think there was a teacher who said this. Like, everyone starts with 100%. And it's up to you to to lose those marks. Right. And I mean, it's an interesting way of looking at it, Mm. but it's hard too, because I think in in our job, it's hard to do that automatic trust in everything because our job is so, there's so many aspects to the types of calls we respond to. And there's so many aspects to the, the mental and physical aspects that we also respond to or don't respond to. That's the part that becomes hard to navigate. But I think that what makes that easier to navigate is that idea of, again, we've talked about that grit and resilience and strength, and it's by making yourself more well-rounded is just we're only making our department stronger and i think that goes on every level it doesn't matter if you recruit to the chief anyone who's not listening you're doing yourself such a disservice Mm -hmm.